people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Top of the Heat, written by and starring Christopher St. John. No, uh-uh. Ain't gonna be no days like that. You're gonna have to shoot me right in my face, Mr. Black P. When a black man bears his soul and tells his story, he lets it all hang. His rage was the illness of the times. Me! I just got back from a trip to the moon! Hassled by his soul brothers with his mother dying, he can only escape to the moon. You're gonna have to kill me, nigga! Drop that knife! Drop it! I put on this uniform and I go out there in the streets and people look at me and they hate me. That's because you're a mean, selfish man. Captain Latimer, what has the training for the flight been like? Isolation. Uh, Isolation is sort of uh, uh, like waiting at the mailbox for your welfare check. A little itch here. uh. Yes, sir. Take off your uniform, Lieutenant. Yes, sir. Hey, mother, you want me to pull out my thing and blow you a new hole? Hey! What's you on your pocket? Damn, brother, you the man. The most unusual picture of its time starring Christopher St. John, whom you last saw in Shaft. I can do any damn thing I want. Come on, you nigga. so you won't be dealing for a while, baby. Top of the Heap is a powerful, dynamic story as only a black man can tell it. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also joining us for the first time is Mr. Gary Phillips. Hello, hello, hello. Our Black History Month coverage continues with a look at Christopher St. John's Top of the Heap. Released in 1972, the film stars St. John as George Latimer, a D.C. police officer who's confronted with pressures from his job, his wife, and his daughter. When his mother dies, George undergoes a bit of a breakdown where he starts fantasizing about having another life, including being an astronaut. The film managed to come out despite a feud between St. John and his producer, Joe Solomon, We will be spoiling this film, which used to be impossible to find, but now it's out there if you know where to look, and hopefully a proper Blu-ray release will be uh, out here sometime, but be prepared for spoilers is what I'm trying to say. So Sam, had you seen this one before you agreed to come on the show? Yes. So I have a podcast called Twitch of the Death Nerve, and... I think around this time last year, we really wanted to do an episode on the spook who sat by the door. And we watched a couple things that we thought would be related, like, of course, Sweet Sweetback. But that was my first time watching Top of the Heap, and I absolutely loved it. 
And Garrett, how about yourself? Have you seen this one before? I had not seen it before. I had heard of it from a, in particular, a buddy of mine, uh, Michael Gonzalez, uh, a wonderful writer and, and cinephile, and um, had, I guess, maybe maybe a couple of years ago, then I was going to watch it because I think it's on, I want to say it's on Amazon Prime or maybe maybe that's right. Anyway, anyway, I wound up not watching it then, but then I was certainly happy uh, when uh, you asked me to come on and, uh, you know, riff on it. Uh, with y'all uh, today, so it was a great, it was a great watch, I, and I agree. It was it's really, I mean, really, it it so uh, so deserving of much more attention and accolades uh, apparently than than it got uh, when it first came out. Yeah, I was pretty unfamiliar with this one as well. I've had because, like I said, it's not legitimately available on any medium as far as I know, but you can get it. Like I've bought DVDs of it, I've bought a Blu-ray of it. So it's out there. I just don't know if any money is, you know, going to Mr. St. John. I don't know who owns the rights to it. I don't know if he knows who owns the rights to it. It's one of those weird situations. And we'll hear later on in an interview with him where it was shown at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And they thought that he was dead and did this restoration. And he's like, yeah, I'm not dead. I'm I'm still still alive and kicking. So thank goodness for that. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not. Two weeks ago, when we talked about Ganja and Hess, I really made the distinction that this is Black History Month. This is not any sort of like a black exploitation month. This is not a black exploitation film. This is as far away from like shoot 'em up, cops and robbers, shaft kind of stuff as you can possibly get. I mean, there's some action scenes in here. You know, don't don't worry about it. They, especially at the beginning, you get this whole riot scene and stuff. But I mean, our hero. He's not cool. I mean, he's a cool dude. He wants to be cool, but he's not having a good time of it. He's got his wife who is constantly nagging him. He's got his daughter who's messing around with this kid in the neighborhood and who's on drugs. His mother has died. He's being passed over by promotion for promotion. This is not a guy that's having a good time in his life. And he's not out there like, you know, chasing down people that have skipped out on their bail or something like that. He's a workaday cop who makes barely enough to get by him and his partner are talking about taking graft, all this. It's not one, uh, it's not what you have in your mind when you look at that cover of whatever DVD or whatever you're looking at, where you got him with a shotgun and all this kind of stuff. I don't even think we see that scene in the movie. No, he's definitely, uh, and it's right. And he's definitely, you know, the, the, the angst written, torn, uh, and it's, you know, and it's certainly apropos of, of that time period. And, and now in terms of the black cop who was somewhat trapped between, uh, being part of the community, but also being, uh, in, in law enforcement. And what does that mean? Is he a Tom? Is he a sellout? You know, these are things that are, that are certainly plaguing, plaguing George, you know, throughout the movie. Yeah. And I think it's so important that you describe it as being, you know, the opposite of Shaft, because I think there's this really frustrating tendency, especially among genre film writers and critics, to talk about all movies in the 70s that are black crime films or more sort of serious crime dramas to just be written off as black exploitation. But here I feel like it does this really weird but amazing thing where it's like before the big wave of black exploitation even really took off it seems like it's 
it's kind of unpacking those tropes in a in a very kind of serious downbeat way that's so interesting yeah it's very downbeat and i should say too you know i i said in the intro about him fantasizing about him uh being an astronaut george goes through so many fantasies in this movie and the fantasies are interspersed throughout this entire thing but it's not just fantasies it's also memories and thoughts about things so you get to really be in his head so much of the time in this movie and he will have a conversation with his wife then he'll go out with his partner and he's on patrol he's working nights trying to get that extra money trying to get that overtime and he'll flash back immediately to part of the conversation he had with his wife or he tries to uh, arrest these two guys. I love these guys. These guys are sitting around playing cards. Got this big chicken on the table. Man, this bird is looking good, Jim. Yeah. Drip any grease on the grass, baby? Well, I don't drip no grease on the grass. This blow is really out of sight. And then they just start to berate him when he tries to arrest them. And he's just like, "Mm -mm, no, I'm not doing this. And they, they, like, they're calling him all these names and things. You know, turn around, put your hands on the wall. No, man. Uh Uh-uh. Ain't gonna be no days like that. Now, if you shoot me, you're gonna have to shoot me right in my face, Mr. Black P. Nigga, cop. They mad at you, babe? Trying to do his job like anybody else. Pointing that goddamn gun at us. Is that your job, nigga? Huh? Put your goddamn hands on the wall. No! No, goddammit. You black-ass pig. And then he's flashing back on that. And by the end of the movie, he has this whole litany of all these little flashes that play through his mind. And you never know when these things are coming. And they're not always signaled with that kind of wavy screen fuzzy edge kind of thing there's you get a little bit of that but a lot of times you just like boom here's a little flash boom we're in a fantasy sequence now and you never know when they're going to come right exactly and 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 is it you know and it's it's kind of interesting i was thinking about even the beginning of the movie at this protest and and by the way it's all white protesters at this at this rally or i think it is in the, and then he gets the piss balloon in the face. But then we see George, and you know, then, then the cut is that we, we go to George and he's watching this on TV. And then I, I was kind of thinking, well, did we never, did, yes, it seems like it's a news report that he's watching of the of incident that he was at, but then you never saw, you know, any cameras or uh, uh, news trucks. So again, is this, is this something that he's just projecting? Is he watching a blank screen on TV and he's just sort of, and is, he, is he projecting something that maybe happened to him? And now he's, you know, reliving it again, but he's reliving it through TV because he needs that kind of anchor, you know what I mean? The kind of semi-given reality uh, to himself. So, yeah, it's great that the the film plays with these, with with his perception, of course, and then our perception. That's a really good point. I never would have thought about that before. This is maybe going to be a wild comparison, but the, the first time I saw this, it made me think a lot about the sort of, gothic literary tropes that are usually applied up applied to female protagonists where there there's the suggestion that they're an unreliable narrator or maybe they're going mad and they go on these flights of fancy and so 
it rem- it kind of reminded me of something like Robert Altman's Images, which I think was made in the same year where it's a very different setup, but it's this character who's clearly isolated and maybe feels persecuted or feels like they don't belong. And their brain starts to blur between memory and fantasy. And it's it seems like such a difficult way to write a script, but it makes for such an absorbing film experience. It's like you're always trying to figure out where we are in his head. It really does pull you in uh, in that way. Uh, and it keeps you kind of watching and thinking, well, is this, is this guy going to actually lose his is, is George going to just lose his mind? Does he, does he blow his top, right? Does he, does he go off? And, 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 and slowly but surely, you know, he sort of, he seems to come apart and then he kind of pulls himself together, right? Cause he's got the job and he's got to, you know, he's got to, uh, you know, as you said, he's got to make the rent. He's got to, you know, and it kind of gives him focus, right? It, it does give him something, a purpose, but yet he's also losing his way. My expectation watching it especially the first time, was that at any moment he could sort of explode into violence because of exactly what you just said about how you can never tell. Like, it feels like the pressure is always building up. And like, when is it going to explode? You know, the way that information is doled out in this film is very interesting. The way that we get a little bit of, I think it's like his captain saying like, oh, you know, I heard about your mom and later on his partner or no, it's it's not even his captain at the first. It's this other guy, Pellegrino, who's a little bit aggressive, and he's just like, "Oh yeah, I heard about your mom," and and then later on, his partner uh, brings it up, and even between that, his wife at one point is like, "How many days are you going to take off?" And it took me a few viewings before I realized, oh, she's talking about the funeral as well. And this whole thing, he doesn't want to go to this funeral. The funeral is down in Alabama. He does not want to go to Alabama from D.C. He, you know, Alabama has a lot of connotations, of course, for African-American people. It's just like, don't want to go there. And here I am in the nation's capital, which I think is also very interesting. We really get a lot of the you know, Washington Monument and Lincoln Memorial and the White House. And I think it's very important that it's set here in Washington. You're talking about Spooky Set by the Door, which, again, I think starts off in Washington through so much of that before it moves over to Chicago. It starts off in 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 the capital a little bit, but mostly in what's supposed to be Langley. Yeah, and then you also had the connection too with Paula Kelly, who is in both of these films. And Paula Kelly is it's George's piece on the side, though it, it doesn't feel like there's a real connection between these two characters. They feel very like strangers when they get together. There, there's some moments where you're just like, how well do these two know each other? And I think it might just be a sex thing and not a relationship thing. And I feel like he is kind of insulating himself against any sort of relationships because he's just having such a hard time with anything. I mean, on top of the whole thing with his mother dying, it's that Pellegrino character who also talks about um, how he got passed over for promotion. And it's uh, that sounds very racially motivated, where it's just like, yeah, you know, there's this other guy, this white guy who got the position and not you. Sorry, George, keep trying. And it just feels like, you know, somebody's boot is on his neck. And that's part of his uh, conundrum, right? He recognizes the racism in the department. uh, And and so he tries to, you know, to a certain extent, I suppose, try to deal with it or at least uh function 
understanding that that's the environment that he's in. But he also recognizes that, you know, as, as you, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, Mike, when he goes to bust the, the two, uh, uh, I guess, petty criminals, uh, the two cats, you know, having some Coke and, and, and chicken and wine, I think they were drinking wine. Anyway, the point being, and of course they gave him a bunch of shit. Uh, and, and so then he, again, he's like this guy who's like trapped, you know, between these two worlds. So he doesn't write, he doesn't fit in and either one. And maybe that's the point. And actually now as we talk about it, so I guess maybe that's the point about the whole moon thing. Right. So look, if I can go to the moon, I can be away from all this, <laughs> but even in the moon, he's not quite away. He's not really away from all of it, <laughs> but, but I think maybe in his, in his fantasy and, and in his, his daydreams that he thinks, well, okay. If I could just, you know, you know, get there in that rocket ship, I can go there to the to the moon. Uh, I can claim it for America and for me. You know, I'll be good. And then, of course, the night kind of goes haywire too. And then, as as we as we find out, it's also a false front. <laughs> it's also not real. <laughs> yeah, it's so Capricorn one in that scene when they like turn and there's the camera and you think that he's in outer space and then he like starts to fall over and then you hear people just like what are you doing what's going on and it's like what oh now we're on a sound stage okay and the flag in that scene i mean there are american flags throughout this entire movie and they really get pointed out i mean there's an american flag on this woman's bottom there's the american flag being torn up by the the rioters at the beginning um, but yeah, there's the flag that's going on. Uh, and I found it very interesting that it's an upside down flag, which means stress, you know, on the moon. And then later on, there's one fantasy sequence where he feels very much like a black nationalist and he's got a flag behind him with like Jolly Roger on that as well. It's like, wow, we're, we're really playing with symbols here, which I really appreciate. And then even just the artifice of stuff too, like when he is having those, uh, astronaut fantasies and, and it takes him all the way from like mission control and then there's even like a scene where he had to abort a mission but when he's on the moon and he looks up and he sees the earth i mean it's so obviously just a globe and i think that saint john is embracing that and just being like yeah no this is how it is this is this artificial world that we live in he's not going for stanley kubrick effects here he's just like no this is very symbolic and i really appreciate that he's dealing with symbols so much in this film Maybe he's going after and fantasizing about all of these really concrete, like uniforms and symbols and flags as a stand in for personal identity. Like he doesn't really seem to know who he is. And Mike, earlier you pointed out that his relationship with his girlfriend seems really not like they don't know each other, not emotionally intimate at all. And it kind of struck me that. Their relationship seems like like something he feels like he should be doing rather than something he's excited about. Like so much there's just so much emotional distance. Yeah, it's almost like, well, of course I've got my wife and my daughter and my, you know, regular home type thing going on, but it, it, yeah, like it's an expectation that I've got the piece on the side that I'm, you know, giving her money you know he can't even give her 15 dollars. he's only got 12 dollars and 25 cents in his pocket that she's a singer at a club i found interesting too and like he comes in at one point she's doing a rehearsal and I, at first i thought it was a real performance but no it was a rehearsal for later on and 
the way I put it in my notes was like this Jerry Jones type. And I was like, wait, no, that actually is Jerry Jones. Actually is Jerry Jones. Yeah. <laughs> when he shows up and I'm just like, oh, okay. He's in this movie too. And he just starts harassing George like crazy. I'm like, guys, this guy's a cop. Why are you giving him such shit? And they end up having a big fist fight in the club. I was like, you don't mess with a cop, man. What are you doing? You know, it was to mention, right? Of course, I, I'm sure. I guess all the listeners uh, uh, of the projection group know this, but yes, Jerry Jones is a, of uh, a playwright, and of course, uh, the writer of Dolomite, and I think the Human Tornado. I think he wrote. I think he wrote two. Right? I think he wrote two of those. And not for nothing, by the way, Ken Norton, the boxer, is one of the patrons in the club. Oh wow, I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go back and look, that's Ken Norton. They push him aside so he never swings his fist because I guess he knock him out for real but uh yeah so i, I thought that was uh, kind of interesting they got both kim norton and jerry jones to do those cameos so uh, that's pretty cool and of course and now i can't i can't see jerry jones without thinking of uh 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 keegan michael keep playing oh <laughs> play, yeah uh, playing him in the dolomite movie <laughs> uh, so it's all it's all collapsing in my head i oh by the way i it, as we were talking about this it, it it's funny uh, i hadn't thought about this before uh, but of course, Paula Kelly un- has the unfortunate um, character description. I think he's just called Black Chick in the script. Yeah, right. That's in it. The- even in the yeah. end credits. Yeah. Come on, man. You don't even give her a name. Come on. And so it's a- rude. It's so rude. It's so rude. And it's so wrong. And it reminded me, she's in. Um, I think I don't think it's the same year, but it's around. It's around about this time. She's in Soyant Green, and in Soyant Green. The women are called well. I guess, is there some men? Anyway, for sure though, the two women in the movie are called furniture, right? That's how terrible it is. That's how that's how messed up it is in the in the in the near future, uh, where the women don't even have identity other than attached to you know whatever whatever big big wig you know whatever sugar daddy is paying their rent. And Paula Kelly uh, is again, uh, I believe she doesn't have a name in that movie either. She's just part. She's just. Furniture Girl, one of the, or they just call them furniture. I mean, it's just, oh my lord, it's just, it's just terrible. Paula Kelly deserved better. Yeah, much better. Absolutely. She deserved much, much better. That's for sure. Yeah, at least her role in um, Spook Who Sat by the Door is pretty meaty. I mean, she really makes her presence known in that film. And in this one, it's like, wait, is that Paula Kelly? And she does show up a few times. There's that weird moment where he, she starts taking pictures of him and he smacks the camera down. He's like, what are you doing? And she's like, uh, I want to take a picture of my man. Like in that moment, almost breaks my heart when it plays. I'm just like, Oh man, she's actually really likes this guy, but he's just so off in his own, like literally off in his own world that he can't make that connection with her. Exactly. And, and of course, his fear of obviously being found out or whatever, whatever. But yeah, that that all these things are always just uh, you know these these pressures that he puts himself in, right? I mean that you know that he's he's constantly sort of putting himself, inserting himself in these positions. And the squeeze is on him. The squeeze is on him, you know, financially, psychologically, you know, throughout this whole movie. It is kind of it is trippy in that regard. Yeah. Well, he has that one scene where he's on the bus and he's wearing his cop uniform, but he wears this big trench coat over, and he does that a few times in the movie where he almost looks like a private detective or something. And this guy comes on and the bus driver's like, oh, you didn't give me enough money and kind of hassles him. And the guy's just like very belligerent and just like, yeah, what are you doing? You know, of course I gave you enough money. And the guy's like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he backs down and the guy comes back to where George is sitting. And he's just like, can you believe what's going on with this guy? And he's like, hold on a minute. I'm going to give him a hard time. He goes up to the front of the bus again. And he starts talking about how he's got a gun and 
George comes up and starts to shake this guy down. And the bus driver has no idea what's going on. George never identifies himself as a police officer. Eventually the bus driver parks, the bus runs out, just like calling the, for the cops, the cops come over and they grab George and he never says that he's a cop for like the takes his gun out and all this stuff. And then finally it's like, well, if you look closer, you'd see I'm wearing the same uniform. And I'm just like, you identify yourself as a cop, especially to another cop. And especially because you're black, you don't want to end up death by cop right here in the streets of DC. I mean, how many times has that happened? Well, is, or is it George's death wish? That's true. Yeah. I, that's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He is putting himself in a lot of risky situations in this film. It's almost Kafka-esque to watch the ways that he's shit upon by the police force but but also it's like everyone he tries to interact with in the black community hates that he's a cop so it seems like the obvious solution is quit the force and find a job somewhere you're actually respected and and it's like as you pointed out gary like he's in a bind he has all these financial issues so it's not that simple but it just, it almost seems like he's continue. he's just like perpetuating his own suffering. Maybe that's the reality. I mean, and listen, we all get stuck in, uh, God knows I've had jobs that, you know, weren't the greatest of jobs, but you know, you're at a certain point and whatever the pressure is, and maybe you got to make the rent or you got, and in his case, he's got the kid and, and this and that. And so it's like, well, what else do I do? Right. So, and right. And so, so he's thinking, you're right. I mean, and he's been a cop for some time, uh, right? He's been on the force for a while, uh, and and maybe that again is that 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 fantasy about being the astronaut, which of course is so far removed, right, from from his reality. Um, and yet, maybe that's the only thing. Maybe that is the only thing he can think about or dream about, because, uh, like you said, Sam, what's he going to do? Is he going to is he going to work for the sanitation department? I guess he could work for the sanitation department. He's a civil servant, right? But maybe that's not what he wants to do. And so it's one thing is like, like, well, okay, I'm stuck in this job, but I generally speaking, you know, he, he, he can do it. He can function in it. But yet, and then you get, you know, then you get to be a certain age or whatever. And then you get like, well, do I take that step off the pier? Do I change careers? What do I do? And yeah. And, it, and it's just, and he can't, and, and, you know, the poor bastard can't find happiness, right? He can't find happiness at home. Can't find happiness with, with, with his, his girlfriend. Uh, and, and then he couldn't even go to a bar and have a drink. But then, of course, he gets belligerent, too, in the bar. So, I mean, you know, it's just, I mean, God. <laughs> it never ends. It never ends. <laughs> There's so many parts to the astronaut fantasy. Like, when he, you know, we initially see him, he's, like, walking down this hallway, and he signs into this guest book it almost looks like and it says top of the heap and there's a picture of the earth and he signs his name george latimer really big in there and he goes inside of this room and it took me a while to realize that everybody in his dream sequences are just recast versions of other characters so it's his partner it's this guy what's the guy's name is it ken or tim i think it's tim um is they're reading all these numbers off his uh sergeant yeah, the, uh, the older guy yes that's yeah right. yeah right his, right right his sergeant or his captain is in a lot of these as well the tin character is interesting because it feels like that's the only person that he does seem to have connection with he goes to visit tim 
And I'm not sure what Tim's relationship was, if he used to be on the force or something and then retired. I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think, think so. so. Yeah, that was my impression. That was my, and, and that Tim was kind of like a mentor uh, figure to him, I think, right? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. how it seemed. Yeah. Yeah. Who seemed to probably have a problem with alcohol as well. Well, you know, he's got to stay dry in the old folks' home, man. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's okay to ask for a pint now and then. I, I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> There's also this thread that goes through all this. I mean, I, I, I can't remember. Was it Richard M. Dixon, the uh, Nixon impersonator? He shows up in this. And uh, there's one part, I think it's the first astronaut fantasy, right before they cut, you hear somebody say, let me make one thing perfectly clear. So as soon as you hear that, you're just like, okay, well, that's nixon and then later on you see him there's a there's this whole thing with like a ticker tape parade because um that all takes place in this fake town which is supposed to represent his town in alabama and you see dixon up there again you know doing the the peace signs and all this and in one of the other fantasy sequences because like i said we hop all around here and it's okay that i'm hopping through this story i think we get to another one and he's talking about how he got the job of an astronaut. He went to like a manpower, like a Kelly services type of thing and saw this sign and just applied. He's like, and he keeps talking about my friend, Richard. See, I have this friend who works at the white house. His name is Richard and, and he's a janitor. And I promised him, he's a very good friend. I promised him that if, if I made it to the moon, that I would name the lunar module after him. Richard. Yes, Captain Latimer, how were you selected to be one of the first men to go to the moon? Well, I was in I was in desperate need of a job, and I was at the unemployment office, and um, was at Bulletin for Manpower Incorporated. I filled out the application, and after that, it was all very easy, and I, I always liked to fly anyway. What are the greatest fears that come with being an astronaut? The only one. The uh, very prominent fear that maybe we are not wanted out there with our human debris. And I'm just like, the whole time, I'm like, I know he's talking about Nixon. I know that he thinks in this fantasy that him and Richard Nixon are best buds. And I love the way that the logic of this stuff works. Certainly at that time period, that there could be this, you know, equal opportunity employment for uh, black black astronauts. Although there had been, you know, there it, it, this is actually uh, some years before. There's actually, that's another great story about there was a... Um, he was a pilot. He was a, a, a Korean uh, jet pilot and uh, black. And uh, Kennedy really wanted to integrate the uh, the astronaut corps and really push to have this guy. And I'm, I'm blanking on his name now, but I, I, I've done a little research on him because I kind of use the character like that in a, in a story of mine. And, and really push to have him be part of that. Uh, what's the what's the term? The right stuff. He really pushed to have him be part of that that right stuff. And of course, because of the racism and, and, and other factors, he was, he, he was pushed out. And there's actually a great man. I I'm, I'm blanking on it now, but there's a great documentary. I mean, he's not the subject of it per se, but sort of a documentary about, uh, African-Americans and, and flying. And there's a great, uh, cause he went on to become a sculptor. Uh, but it, there's a great little piece with him and he talks about that. And so I, I, I thought maybe that, that St. John knew that story and was kind of, uh, you know, pulling from some of those threads as well, because certainly in, in 71, it was not the case that the, that the astronauts, well, there weren't even women, so let alone uh, black folks. I mean, they were on Star Trek, but they weren't, <laughs> but they weren't, <laughs> they weren't in, in, uh, in, in reality. 
There were some memos that went back and forth between Fred Dutton, who was a very close aide to the president, and Adam Yarmolinsky, who was the Pentagon's equal employment guy. Dutton sends a memo to Yarmolinsky saying it would be a good thing for America if the astronaut corps was opened to members of minority groups. Yarmolinsky writes back and says, in effect, we don't discriminate, anybody can become an astronaut. Dutton writes back and says, yeah, that's not good enough. We need a minority astronaut candidate, and I'm giving you a deadline. The Air Force responds fast. There's a young black pilot ready to start training. Captain Edward Dwight Jr. with a top aeronautics degree and 2,000 flying hours under his belt. I did not dream that I was going to become the first black astronaut. That never entered my mind because that was a big obstacle standing in my way. And I knew that was going to be a racial component to that obstacle, but I didn't know it was going to be as sophisticated and as determined as it was. You know, these tropes, these things that he's pulling on and he's giving us, it made sense that he would want the ticker tape parade in his little hometown because, of course, that's also the reason, right, as we've said, he, he, he won't go back there, right? Because he, he's not respected. He's not, he's not you know, uh, looked upon as a success. But, of course, if he was an astronaut, uh, he would be lauded, right? They would have a ticker tape parade for him. They would, uh, you know, roll out the red carpet. But so in his in his fantasy, even though, of course, as we've just said, the all the moon stuff was fake, it doesn't matter because if I can sell that idea, if I can sell an image, I can be I can be a hero in my hometown. I was talking about the symbolism earlier. How amazing is that blown up telegram that's there in the town when he goes to visit and he just comes in and what is it? There's there's like stuff on a table, am I remembering correctly? That it's like they just he just shows up out of nowhere it's almost like a western scene like i'm expecting a, a showdown or something and he just like is there and there's this huge blow up of the telegram informing him of his mother's death and he bursts through that and it's a brick wall and then just she's way down at the other end of this uh long narrow street and he goes down to her and starts to talk to her and that was just like wow this is i mean you can tell he's just not happy to be here obviously you know a lot of bad memories and then of course with the death of his mother and yeah just afraid of um, disappointing her as well as all the other people in the town it's so creepy though like I, I feel like when you see those kinds of surrealistic effects in movies they're often associated with like more whimsical fantasy if that makes sense but here it's just it's like not even horror movie nightmare it's just in this kind of depression zone <laughs> but that it, it just shows you how hip this film was man and how ahead of its time it was and and uh as uh, and how hard it had to have been i mean let alone now how hard it had to have been to try to figure out how can we get there's an audience for this film but they've got to you know how do we get them to come see it right uh, you know, because it is a because it's right. It is not a black exploitation movie, uh, but it will be lumped into that category, uh, and so therefore, right. Therefore, we'll put uh, uh, the brother on the poster with a big shotgun because maybe that'll you know lure a few folks in, you know, on that. But then when they sit down to, to see it, then they 
they're going to get a whole different experience now. <laughs> and some may be disappointed. Now, some may, may be, you know, uh, revelatory, right? Some may be saying, oh, okay, all right, I'll, I'll roll with this. But, but you know, and, and I'm sure that must have been part of it. Well, I guess you've got an interview with St. John, because I'm sure that had to be part of the, the you know, the locking, the knocking of heads, like, how do we market this film? Yeah, it seems like an impossible task. How do you even describe this movie? If I were to give it like the elevator pitch, it's like, well, he's a cop, but he has fantasies of being an astronaut. And it's like, what, he's psychotic? It's like, no, not really. <laughs> right, right. You know, right, just, not really. No, it's a little Fellini, it's a little Captain Avenis. If you had the benefit of later film audiences who are, who are more some of whom were more used to art house films. You call it like a surreal art house drama, but in the early seventies, like how would they have even, how would they have marketed this? And let's not forget, speaking of Shaft, St. John is in Shaft. St. John is the, you know, is is the militant, is the guy, (laughs) is the, is the, is the brother, uh, 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 you know, out of the streets uh, that uh, for, you know, for his own reasons, uh, worked with Shaft to you know resolve uh the plot but it, so so yeah it, it, and so i guess coming because shaft was before this film was that right am i right about that yeah so co- i'm sure coming on with that they they thought well okay we got saint john so so right back to that that image right of him with the shot it makes sense that you would try to uh play off that image right uh because then you try to think well all right maybe we can get a few people you know to come a few people who watch some of the folks who watch Shaft, maybe they'll come watch this. Uh, but you know, you don't you don't have the driving soundtrack, and right, and for sure, it is not it is not the same film. It's not that it, it is not the same lineage. <laughs> Even if they had tried to call it a somber drama or something, that would have. I I just I think when you mismarket a movie as being this fun action exploitation romp where you don't have to think too much and it's all just kind of different entertaining scenes and and then you walk into something that's as complicated and challenging as top of the heap it just kind of curses the movie i mean even then the idea that if you if he could have and i'm i'm, I'm i imagine saint john might have tried this which is to say you know you try to uh interest the uh the black intelligentsia you know what I mean? About this kind of film. And if they could write about it, if they could talk about it, you know, maybe you could build up a little, you know, groundswell of support and people would come and, and whatever. But, uh, but certainly, you know, it was, well, in those days, even more so, you know, it was, it was, it was word of mouth. It was, you know, you had, but you had to afford, could he afford to show them on college campuses or could he show them, you know, at different venues where you could try to maybe build that up. And maybe he tried it. For all I know, he tried that and maybe that's, part of the uh the antagonism part of that you know that breakdown between him and the you know him and the producer well it's funny because you know i mentioned how we talked about um ganja and hess a couple weeks ago and that was the exact same thing where the production company is we're going to put this into this playboy theater and have Klieg lights and this big premiere something that doesn't fit the movie and meanwhile you've got producer chiz schultz going no no this should be an art house film this needs to work with word of mouth this is like a midnight movie type of thing where you need that long tail before you start to get people to come into the theater this is probably exactly the same thing i mean you're talking about the way that it's sold i mean the whole like um 
what was it? Rage, rage is a symbol of the time kind of thing. And I'm looking at the lobby cards right now. And it's like one of him and Alan Garfield, where it looks like, you know, Garfield's got his hands up. Like he's kind of, it almost looks like he's holding a gun on him. There's uh, a couple shots from that bar fight. There was one of him as the astronaut, one of him as the black nationalist. And then there's a couple of him with his cop brethren. And it's like, Okay, what kind of, you know, what are you selling with this movie? This is pretty interesting. Yeah, this one should have, should have probably been handled a little bit differently. But I mean, like I said, it sounds like he and his uh, producer did not get along at all. And his producer was thinking that this was going to be another Shaft type movie when St. John is making this very heartfelt, very contemplative movie, which is just this whole gift box of things to unwrap constantly with all of these different things that are happening in the movie and just seeing his performance. He gives a hell of a performance. I don't think there's one scene that he's not in, in this movie. Can you imagine though, being a director and the star and you're fighting with the producer and you're trying to make this kind of movie that not many people were, were making in the U S in the early seventies it just like it's such an impressive feat. Yes, and 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 then the I guess you know be I, I don't know did it have did it have foreign distribution? Was it able to get to uh, other markets? I mean, you know, overseas markets. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure sure either how where this played, how it played. Right, right. I'm sure St. John must have you know again you know lost several you know years or, or got more gray hairs trying to you know push the mark you know push the film in those markets. Knowing that, you know, if, if, if you could give it a chance, yes, that people would respond, but you're right. It's got it. You got to make, you got to get it to that art house, uh, that art house crowd. The end of the film is quite a shock. It's the one time where reality and the dream world collide and combine. And it's, I mean, it's so bizarre because it's, it's George and his partner are hanging out. And they're just doing their thing. And, and his partner's like, ah, I'm thinking about, you know, switching up back to days. And so it feels like maybe this whole thing of them being these two partners out here at night, all night long and patrolling is, is coming to a little bit of an end. And the, the partners are talking about UFOs and all this. And then George is finally just like, Hey, I'm going to go out. I'm going to get to get some air. We've got that suddenly. He's walking, but then boom, now he's got the ticker tape parade in his old hometown. He's got Nixon cheering him on. You don't really see anybody in the streets. You just hear the sound of the crowd, which is pretty interesting. So we've got that and cross-cutting back from that to him just walking down the street, down the stark alley. And then next thing you know, there's a gun coming out of a window up above. And of course my mind immediately goes to JFK with something like this, where you've got the assassin up in the window and then he gets shot in both of these versions, both in his fantasy and in his reality. And he collapses onto a pile of garbage and that's it. That's the movie. And then you have the amazing credit sequence. And I, I feel like St. John is making a point here because the credits are done in such a way. I've never actually seen credits done like this before. It's the still image of him as the, as George, as the cop version of George with the blood on his head on the, the pile of garbage in the alleyway up on top of the screen. And then all of the subsequent credits are at the bottom of the screen. I'm just like, Oh, 
George is at the top of the heap. Okay. And down below is everybody else. And yeah, like Paula Kelly as black chick and then, and the music just plays, it just plays us out and, and it never goes away from George being at the top of the screen. It's just, it's kind of breathtaking. The last 15 minutes or so, it, it almost gives me this vibe that like, here's someone who doesn't really, and I'm sure this is not actually the case, but it, it makes me think of like a young filmmaker who didn't go to film school and doesn't know kind of cinema conventions and just does whatever they want. But here it feels like like a more assured, confident version of that where he just it's like, I don't have to do the credits the regular way. Why would I? The film, it's, I'm just happy that, that I got to see it. But but also that I love it that yeah, that Jerry Jones shows up, you know, because it, it's such a, you know, what is it? What's the term? Is it is it a meta reference? I don't know if that's quite it, but you know, you know, but here's you know Jerry Jones who you know, was a serious cat and serious playwright, and, and but he's going to be forever known you know, as the guy who wrote Dolomite, and he knows he's the guy, and he knows that that's what he's going to be known for. So in a certain way, he's like George too, because he's kind of like he's kind of like trapped in these two worlds, like the serious work. I mean, you know, hey, listen, I like Dolomite, so don't get me wrong. But you know what I mean? The the work, the, the heavy work, you know, nobody knows. Dolomite, they know. <laughs> so of course he's got Jerry Jones there. Of course. And of course Jerry Jones is belligerent too. <laughs> That's gotta feel terrible that you're doing this work that you care about that's really important to you, and then this fun but maybe more superficial work that's associated with a number of stereotypes, the only thing that people want to recognize you for. A wonder top of the heap is so angry. So let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with a very extended interview with Mr. St. John right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. For this one, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm just going to let Mr. St. John take it. He answers all the questions I would have asked anyway. Settle in and enjoy this interview. It's difficult when you talk about your life. There's so much to talk about that that I find that I could go on for maybe four, four or five hours just talking about my life from the day I was born to the day I'm sitting here at this age, right? And so much has gone and so much has happened. Deep, I mean, very deep, dramatic stuff, very deep stuff that is uh, hurtful. That that made me not want to be in the world, right? That made me run and hide, you know, and things of that sort. That that deep kind of stuff, right? My family that was uh, we were beat up all over the place, 
right? My, my, me and my family, right? And I didn't know why. I always thought that life was great. I, I thought it was great to be a human being, be alive, and so on. So, but somehow there were great difficulties in our house that I didn't know about because I was a baby of my family. So I had like seven brothers and two sisters. My dad, my father died when I was a little boy. Right? I was like six years old, something like that. My father died. I didn't know what happened. I didn't understand death at that time, point in time. All I know is that suddenly he was there, and the next time I knew he was being rolled in the house in a casket. I didn't know what that was, and he was laying there in his casket. I remember a little boy looking at the casket around my father and wondering what happened and touching his, touching his face, and he was like ice cold and hard. I'm telling him, you know, I don't know what's going on. And walked around and looked at my brothers, and all my, 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 I had brothers who were, had been in the army already. I looked at them, and they're all on the same shit, walking around, looking around like that, wondering, what happened? What, what's going on? Right? And I know it's crying. Everybody was crying. They were asking, what's going on? That sort of stuff, right? So that set me apart from the rest of the family. And from that day forward, I realized now, in retrospect, that was the dividing line that caused every gang to go haywire in my family. My mother was so broken hard, broken hearted. She did something that from the whole thing. She, she was, my mother was from British West Indies and she was, had come to America, great, immigrated to America. And all she knew of that, she had all these children. And suddenly the father was gone and she would have left 10 children. And what she learned to do was her broken heart, right? And certainly at the time, but, uh, but as time went on, I began to understand that she never came back from that event. And all she had to do was cook food, put it on the table, walk around like she was in a trance, you know, and then that sort of thing, right? And I didn't know what was happening with her, you know, for a long time. Anyway, so I, but I vowed when I was a kid, that I was going to grow up and become somebody. I don't know why I thought that, but I always thought, I'm going to become some. I'm going to save the world. I swear to God, that was my, that was my chance. I'm going to save the world because something, something seems really screwed up, right? I'm going to save it, right? And, and that's what was in my mind all the time as I was growing up, right? And when I decided I had gone away to school to be to a Catholic school, a Catholic, I was running run away to a Catholic. My mother sent me away to the Catholic school because she wanted to save me from the streets. She wanted to save me from all the bad things that were going on around the neighborhoods and so on and so forth. She sent me to a Catholic school in Delaware. I always... I was thinking about it because I lived, the, the school was not far where Joe Biden lives, in, in Wilmington. The, the, school, the school was in Clayton, Delaware, which is not too far from where Joe Biden, Joe Biden lived, right? And I, I, I always think about that a lot now. But anyway, and I had run away from school one time, you know, and I got to pick the something to me back. Anyway, I had, I arrived to school and my I was crying the whole time from the drive from my home in Connecticut to this place in Delaware, right? I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay home with my mama. But they, she, she, I didn't know why she sent me away. I don't know why. But as I got to the school and I, and I drove in a gate, I looked and looked at it. And my God, what a beautiful place, right? Everything changed, right? Everything changed. At that moment in time, there was this wonderful, beautiful church, you know, great fields of that the people allowing and playing. You know, there were um, 75 or 80 other little black kids from around the country there, right? 
and and I started making fun of the kids and so on and so forth. You know, and there were priests around and nuns around and stuff like that. And I just was going, oh my God, he's beautiful. I want to stay here. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great. That's what saved me. That's what saved, actually saved me. Because I, I became an altar boy. I became an altar boy. And I became the number one chief altar boy. Learned all the Latin. They, they, were, they were doing the mass in Latin at that time. And so was, and, 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 and I learned the altar boy's Latin. And I learned the priest Latin from the mass. I actually learned it. I sat. I said, I would sit around and listen and listen and listen, and somehow it stuck in my head, right? And I, and I, and I basically, I could probably serve, be, serve the mass as a priest if, if, if I needed to, right? And anyway, so I got, I was there for like, like three years. I was there for like three years. And a lot of the things took place. I was the, the champ in the school. I was the best student in the school and, and all that kind of stuff. I made some great friends there. Etc. And then, um, and then after three years, my mother wanted me to come home, right? And I came back home to, to Connecticut, and I went back to school there, and I stayed every day. I went from top top of the heap, I went from the top of the heap to the bottom of the barrel. Let's say, and put it that way. Then you get that analogy. I failed everything in school. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't. I played hooky all the time because when I went to school, I was like, it was me and maybe. Three other black kids in school, in that in that school, what I was what went back to, and I was treated like like a dog, of course, right? And I, I started playing hooky from school. I started playing hooky from school, and and more and more, I failed everything, and like that, I went from being a smart kid to this dumb kid. I failed everything, but the one thing that happened, I played hooky from school. I went to the movies one day, and I saw Sidney Poitier, young Sidney Poitier, in a movie. I looked at him. I said. I knew he was from uh, West Indies someplace, right? And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to look at him. He's really black. He's a movie star. And I just fell in love with him right at that moment in time. And, and I thought to myself, I could do what he does. Look, I'm 12 years old, but I don't know how old he is. He must be like 20 or something, 21 maybe. And no, I think he was like uh, 12, 13 years older and maybe older than me. Yeah, 12, 14 years older than me. That's it. I could do what he does. Look at him. That's what I want to do. I, I didn't even know if he was real or not, you know, because to me at that point in my life, when I looked at movies, I thought they were fake. I thought when they had cowboy movies and they and they had shoot shootouts and stuff or any movies where people died, that they hired prisoners who were in prison to come and be in the movie. And they, and they had to be killed in this movie. And so... They accepted that, that, that they, could, they had to be killed in this movie, right? And I said, well, that's okay, I guess. I don't know, right? But they had to be killed. <laughs> so so uh, they would get killed in the movie, and I, and I would feel sorry for them. I said, well, yeah, but, but these guys were in prison, and I guess they wanted to get out of prison in some way. So they volunteered to be in. They got paid a bunch of money for their families, and they, and they, and they were killed. And so it was all right. It was the all right thing. And then, so, but... Um, as as things went on, I thought a lot about being an actor, but I was afraid. I was afraid, you know, because I, I when I was a kid, I studied really bad. I did. I, I had a hard time talking, right? I studied really bad. You know, and when I saw Sidney Poitier on the screen, he was professional. I mean, he was like, wow, look at this. He's beautiful. He's, look at him. I want to be him, right? 
And and then I went to I started going to the University of Connecticut Bridgeport in Connecticut and uh and then I took some um I was starting to be um I was trying to be an actor and uh I um I did a she did some stuff from Shakespeare, right? And I didn't even know where I was talking about. All I knew was I memorized the dialogue, and I and I sort of understood it a little bit, a little bit. And I did it, and and everybody came rushing up to me after I did the Shakespearean, big Shakespearean piece, and said, "Yeah, man, you're a great actor." You know, I'm all like, "Okay, what are you talking about? You're a great actor, man. You're, you're really good. You're really, really, really good." And so from then, I decided I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be an actor. You know, I can't let this go. You know, so I, 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 um, I, I was at home, and and I came a point in which I had to leave home. And I remember saying to my mama, I said, "Mom, mama, I'm, I'm, I'm going to New York to be an actor." And she said to me, "What? What are you talking about? If you, go, that's a business with gangsters and killers and really bad people." I said, well, "I'll be, I'll be careful. Just be careful. I want to be an actor." Like. Like this guy I saw Sydney Portier, right? So I went to New York. I moved to New York. And the first thing that happened, in fact, I got to New York right at the time that John Kennedy was assassinated. And it's funny because it was, that was a year I got to New York. And I, uh, I remember I actually got this job working in a hospital. And uh, I remember I was going to work that day, got on a bus, and the bus was totally silent. I said, this is weird. Everybody's silent. People were crying and everything like that. And I sat on the bus there. And finally, I said to somebody, what's going on? What's going on? Why are people crying? And they said, the president's been assassinated, John Kennedy. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I remember driving at work. We crying, walking around a whole place. And patients and people at work there walking around. Crying and everything like that, and that was a peak moment in my life. That I realized that people get killed. Something like that could happen to the president of the United States. My God, I, I need better be careful in my life, you know, because this could happen to anybody. People are crazy. So anyway, I I, I started going to uh, drama school at the Carnegie um, Hall. In Carnegie Hall, we had a school I, I found because I'd read a magazine. That the Mayan Brando had studied there at the school, the Trinity Hall. It's called a new school, something like that, you know. So I remember, I remember, I, 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 so I went to Trinity Hall and, and uh, what my up on the you know, eighth floor, something like that, seventh floor. And I, I, I enrolled in the school and I started studying. And uh, and these people here thought I was a rapper. I was a really good actor, you know. So I just, I said, okay, this is this is going to work, right? And then. One day, I meet I meet this guy who was a, a black actor, older black actor, who who was uh, was carrying some signs in front of a company in New York, picking a company that would not hire black people, black black actors to do commercials and stuff like that. Right? So I bumped him into him on the street. His name is Sydney. His name is Sydney. Oddly enough, E J Sydney. Right? Yeah. His name is P J Sydney. And, and he asked me, "Hey, come on, uh, help me pitch it here." And he was picketing by himself. This huge company, Lever Brothers, or something like that. And it's a big company like that, right? And so the big, you know, twenty-story building, and we're down on the on the ground picketing, and people look out the window like that at us. And we're down there with signs walking back and forth, right? And so, and so one day, this sure, one day, I get a call from my agent in New York, and she says, uh, uh, 
this company wants you to do the commercial. I said, what company? He said, Lever Brothers. <laughs> so they were trying to stop us from doing what we were doing. So they, I got this commercial. I did this commercial with Lever Brothers, right? I said, wow, this is great, man. <laughs> this is great. great. And, and, but but I, kept, I kept working with, with PJ anyway, right? I did this commercial. They paid me a bunch of money, Lever Brothers and the company. And then one day, this guy, PJ Sidney and I are walking, walking on 57th Street, and we and, and see this guy coming toward me. And he's dressed in a really fine suit, clothes, and he's tall and handsome. And I said, oh, my God, it's Sidney Poitier. Oh, my God, it's Sidney Poitier. It's for real. And he walks up to me. He, well, he, he walks up to us. He says, hey, PJ, how you doing? He knows PJ. PJ knows him. And he said, my friend here has been with Ben's Christopher. Okay, so he says, so he says uh, okay, he says, uh, we're talking about a while. I'm looking at, look, at Sidney Porter in the flesh. I'm standing there looking at him. He's tall. He's beautiful. He's dressed fantastic. He was a star already by then, big star by then, right? And then he says to me, hey, listen, I only want you to be in my next show, my film I'm doing now, called uh, The Love of Ivy. I want you to be in this film. And I said, well, okay, you know, and it was about this guy who let a game make his, you know, in a truck, in a big truck, and he drove around the he drove around the city, parked different places, and people would come, and he'd be all dressed up in tough shoes and so on, so on, and gamble, right, inside his truck. And so I, I was going to be a, one, one of the dealers and stuff like that, right? And this was great. I did have a party just like that, right? And he bought me this tuxedo that I still have all these years later. I still have the tuxedo, and it still fits me just like a shit me the first day he bought it for me, right? Sydney Poitier, and... Um, through the course of life, through the course of life, I would I would see him from time to time. After I meet Top of the Heap, he would he would he would see me. He would say he he'd come over to me and say, "Listen, we need you." And, and, I'm, and I was heartbroken at that point in time because because I didn't understand how to deal so much with the racism that was going on all the time. Right? I had to work really hard to get anything together. I didn't know. That that you can't be a hump, be a big head or a hard head with the people in Hollywood. You couldn't act that way because they'd kick you to the curb in a minute. You'd be done, right? So, so okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play that game because I want to get ahead. I got nothing to go back to. I can't go back home. My family was gone. Everybody was gone. Everybody broke, broken up. But I, I didn't know what to do with my life, right? And so I said, said I have to make it in some way. In this, in this business, yeah, I told my mother I would. I said, don't worry, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'll come back and, and get you, take you away from this place. Right? The only thing now, it's just a heartbreaking thing for me. But so I knew that I had to behave in a certain kind of way to be able to get through all this stuff. And people told me, you can't do nothing. There's a black guy with a big nose and everything, and they don't like black people, you'll never get anything, you know, so on, so forth. And then, and then and we just try to push them off, pretend I was all right about that, all, all that stuff. But and, and be, I know I had to behave in a certain kind of way to be able to get over, and get everything like I wanted it, right? So little by little, I did that. And then I I, uh, I got this job with wonderful company in, in, in New York. And it was um, something called Bianconi, Bianchini Ferrier, Italian company that imported precious fabric, silk, and other precious fabric to 
that it is sell to the, the, the states in New York, right? To, to, to the, all the designers in New York, right? And, and, and a lot of big designers require stuff from them. So I had this, I had it, I had this great job. And, but I was, I didn't tell them that I was, that an awful actor. They wanted me to work for the cell. After a while, they wanted me to work for the company, right? And then one day I, I went to the president of the company and they worked with me for a few years, right? And I, and I, during that period of time, I had started a theater of my own uh, in, in uh, Lower Manhattan on near 42nd Street. I started a theater, an off, 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 off Broadway theater. Yeah, off, off Broadway. There was Broadway, off Broadway, and there was off Broadway. Off Broadway. Off Broadway. Hey, in this theater, I had like um, 50 seats in it, and, uh, and, and, and I started um, directing. I, I just, I bought myself a director's chair. Put an ad in, in the newspaper. I I, I uh, started auditioning actors to be a part of my company. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew what I was doing. I just had a, a feel for it. I know I just understood what I, I was doing, right? So I sit in my director's chair and I you know, audition actors, and I could tell a good actor from a bad actor, you know, and a good personality from a bad personality. Because I wanted people to work. Because I knew we were going to work for a long period of time. I wanted people to work and fit together. Right. So I did that. I sat in my director's chair. People come down and audition. I auditioned Alan Garfield. My my son Alan Garfield. And who who ended up working at, at the theater for a long time. He did some stuff there. He did a lot of writing there, you know. And then one day he, Alan Garfield came and he said, Hey, could you appoint me a writer in red residence? <laughs> so I said, Sure, he he got it. You're a writer in residence right here at the Troop Theater. It's called the Troop Theater Theater of New York City, right? And uh, so uh, I, I, I kept that place for uh, like seven years. And after seven years, I had someone called me, some, some moments called me and said, do you want, you want to, can you help me do an audition for the actor's studio? But at that point in time, I was, I was interested in the actor's studio because I knew that it was supposed to be the big shot in town, right? But I, uh, I didn't audition because I was busy with my own theater. So she, so, so she thought, I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you a hand. So what do you got? Because she showed me this scene. I said, it's a terrible scene. I'll write you a scene. I wrote her a scene and what that was going to do with her. And so I remember going that night for the audition. It was, uh, Al Pacino was there auditioning. <laughs> Bobby Nair was there auditioning. Uh, Alan Garfield was there auditioning. Right. And a whole bunch of guys like that, right? At that period, that point in time, and I remember standing on the step waiting for my Troy Little audition, and I finally drew up the audition, and um, and she was terrible. But I auditioned within a few days. I got I got a note from Lee Strasberg, and they wanted me to come back and audition again. Me, not me, not not that girl. They didn't like her. I Shelley Winters to come back and audition. So. I go back and I go back by myself, and and I and I, and I do uh, I do uh, play that's was um, I forgot the name of it, but I did do this play, and uh, I did a scene, and the next day they saw that you're going to be a member of the actor studio. They accepted me just like that. I didn't know that people had auditioned for the actor studio for years trying to get in, right? But I got in one audition, and then I got in it. I didn't understand that. So I remember Lee Strasberg calling me and inviting me to his house, to his house, you know, I'm at Lee Strasberg's house, I'm overlooking Central Park, right? I go up there and all these people are there, you know, 
Uh, Paul Newman, and people like that. Big stars were there. I'm going, oh my God, what is this? What am I doing here? How did I get here, right? But I knew that something happened in my life. I knew that somehow I was going to do all right somehow, right? And then Shelly Winters, she wanted to take care of me and make sure, sure I was all right. So I remember her coming to me and saying, because she lived around the corner from me in Manhattan, right? Her big place, I lived in the middle of Hubble, little Hubble, and I'm recorded. So she said, you come to my house, Whenever you are hungry or need anything, knock on the door. I told my maid, let you in and get you, get you something to eat, right? I didn't understand how deep that was. What that would he make? And uh, I would do that. We'd go knock on the door, and then and, and, and the maid would answer, and then and say, oh, hi, let me in. And she would just stand, stand and cook for me, everything like that. And, and then Shelly be there, came a big fan of mine. Anyway, anyway, so 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 then I knew why it was going to be somewhere. And little by little, when I moved down to Action Studio, I started studying with all those people, the you know, great stars. After Action Studio, I said somehow this is going to rub off on me, and I'll be all right. You know, that's essentially kind of what happened. You know, and and all I knew was that I I had to behave in a certain kind of way. That I, I I knew I didn't want to piss people off. I didn't want people to get the people or people who were were audition. You can't go in and act like an asshole. You can't do that. You know you have to go in and act like so. Okay, I'm here for this and that kind of stuff like that, right? And and be nice and so on and so forth because they don't like you. They'll kick you to the curb and they don't want you back in there anymore. They're casting people, right? And so I, I knew that, you know, I learned that through the period of time of having my theater and, and dealing with a bunch of actors that, that I was dealing with for, for, for a number of years, you know. And I, I was able to sell my theater and that cycle. And I had a little bit of money from that. And that helped me be, when I became a member of the actor's studio. It helped, that helped me to do what I wanted. The first time I did the actor's studio was, but for, I guess, for payback for making me a member of the actor's studio, I, I went out and bought a bunch of paint. <laughs> and I painted the actor's studio in New York. I painted the building outside. I got on a ladder, painted the building, I painted, I painted windows, I painted, all, did everything really not nice because I needed a paint job, right? And then everybody, everybody liked that very much. I was painting my hands up, and um, the guys from, uh, this great director from, from Greece, uh, I got acceptance there. When I got acceptance, I knew that that was the key. You had to create an acceptance for yourself before you can get anything better, especially in the era of time that I was living in, right? I knew I was living in an era of time when the guys, be the black before me, had gotten their butts kicked all over the place, right? And they couldn't get anything down. They did things themselves. People who did some great movies. And I, I even weep about it now. The guys who... Uh, did some great movies. We couldn't get real recognition. You know, they got their butts checked, right? But they did some great movies. It could be said when you're an artist, you're compelled to work. You just want to do do things, right? And so I had uh, started put together now a thing where uh, all those people who were the black actors and actresses who were, who were people who were working just before me, right? 
I wanted to do what I do what I could to to, to 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 give them the recognition that they deserve, right? Even if they had died, right? What I wanted well, I wanted to do that because because not for them, I wouldn't be here. Because even though I had it hard, they had it ten times harder. You know, even though I went through a lot of racism, they went through racism ten times worse than I did. Right, and then the black theater in, in, in Harlem, the, the, the black the, the, the black theater in, in New York. You know, I worked there a few times, and everything like that. And still, you know, it's more to be a black than needs to. You know, and and uh, and the thing I did off Broadway, well, I did on Broadway with, with uh, Chuck Cordon, and Chuck Cordon wrote No Place to Be Somebody, and he won a Pulitzer Prize. Chuck and Chuck was a great guy. He was he was a kind of crazy guy. You know, but he was great. And then I remember I was working at that. I was being scene at the active studio, and I and I did this scene with uh, doing a scene with um, Lee Strasberg's wife. And I just had the demarcation the love scene with Lee Strasberg's wife. And he, Lee Strasberg is sitting there watching the scene. All these people, all the active studio people, sitting there watching the scene. And somebody said to me before I did the scene, "You know, it's Lee Strasberg's wife, man. That should go with him. I'm an actor, but just acting. You know, but I'm doing this love." This, Passionate love scene with Lee Strasberg's wife. He didn't say anything, but his wife and I got along really well, right? But he had a young wife, right? Lee Strasberg. So I think that's the reason why he really liked me, you know, because I was able to, to do that and not be afraid that, 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 that doing the scene because, because she, it was his wife, you know, they were just actors working, right? Scaring Ilya Kazan. Each is there. I met at the actual studio where I was painting the building. And he would come out and say, Hey, what are you doing? I said, I was painting the building. He said, It looks nice. It's real nice, right? And sometimes we would sit together on the steps of actual studio. I didn't know who his dad was. I'm just a black kid, didn't know anything about anything, right? He said, I didn't know that he had had a hard time coming to America and all that kind of stuff. He did that movie about him. Uh, he uh, made it to America and so on and so forth and everything. And later, later on in life, as, as I began to understand who these people were, I said, damn, that's, that's Kazan, man, great. But he was a, just a really nice person. We talked a lot and everything like that. And I said, I can't believe I would just sit there and talk with Ilya, the great Ilya Kazan, the great the, the director, right? And some of his stuff rolled off on me somehow, right? Help me, just help me, just to touch shoulders with these people, right? So, so, so anyway, and then, then I was, uh, as as time progressed, I, I and I left my, my theater behind. I sold it. I went to the actor's studio. I was studying there, and then one day I got this. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I did a, a play with Paul uh, Sordino, auditioning actors. I wanted to direct this play at the actor's studio, and this was going to be my big thing. That 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 I was going to present to Lee Strasberg this work I I, I could do so I did Antigone, directing Antigone, but I turned it into a modern version of Antigone. The guy she fell in love with was a, a tennis player, and he was a black guy, right? <laughs> he was a black shit, right? And 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 and, so, and they were falling in love, and then finally I auditioned a bunch of people, and I hired Alcibino to play the King Creon, King Creon, right? And, and this ties in to my movie, Top of the Heat, the, the King, King Creon. And Paul Sorbino told me, he said, he said that when he came to audition, I liked his girth and everything like that, and started, started, et cetera. 
And I thought you paid for that at the time. So I hired him to do the part at the actor's studio. And he had been trying to get in the actor's studio for a number of years and failed and had quit and went back selling cars in New Jersey or something like that, right? And so I had him for a little audition. I gave him the part of King Creon. And then uh, they liked him at the actor's studio. And he was able, through that, to get into the actor's studio. So, you know, he was, he tried to be a wonderful actor. What did one for wonderful things. When I did Shaft, I don't know. So Shaft was the whole, whole thing that happened in, in life, right? That happened to me. And when, when I did that, I was like, well, okay, I don't like doing this stuff. I don't like doing that. I don't want to go and shoot with a machine gun and shoot people and to think that that's a great thing to do. It's not for me, it isn't. I don't want to do that, right? And I don't know if I told you about that, what happened with Shaft and how I got that part, right? And uh, my, my agent sent me for this part. And they just want to tell you, they sent me for this part of Shaft. And I go there on Fifth Avenue in New York. And I go up there and, and I go into this room and all these people in there, director, Gordon Parks, and, uh, and all the other people are there, producers and cetera, et cetera, the room full of people. And I go in to read and... Um, and I go and then give me a script, and I have the script in my hand, and, 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 and I think that I'm going to read for the part of Shaq, because that's what my agents sent me for. And he said, you go read for this part on Fifth Avenue, this place, and read the part of Shaq. I said, oh, this is great. Because I want, I want you to lead in the movie, because I want to be a big movie star, because I, I have important work to do in the world. Right? If I can be a big movie star, I can do that, right? So I drove there to read for this part in this office, and I have the script in my hand, and 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 I, and I said, okay, uh, what what do you want me to read? What part do you want me to read? And and they said, uh, well, actually, we want you to read for the second part, Shaft's buddy. I said, no, I was sent here to read for the part of Shaft, the lead in the movie. And then it, somebody said, well, we've already got somebody. With that, we already have an to, to do that. I said, oh, really? I said, well, but my agent sent me to read here for the part of Shaft. Maybe I can knock him out, right? So he said, no, we got this other guy. We want you to read for the other part. And so this is what happened. I had the script in my hand. I closed it, put it on the desk, and I said, I don't want to read for this part. That's stupid. You're insulting me. It's, I don't want to read for the second part. I want to read for the lead. My agent sent me here to read. Said, but we got this other guy. And I said, okay, thank you very much. And I just walked out of the office. I walked out of the office. I got out of the Fifth Avenue. And I went, oh, what'd you do? What the hell did you do? Oh, oh, what, what'd you do? And you turned, I, I didn't know every black actor in New York wanted that part. So I go home that night. This is true. I go home that night. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there in my apartment. And I'm thinking about it, and what did you do? You can't do that, man. You have to take what you can get, so on and so forth. And then, and then the phone rings, and it's Gordon Parks. He called me on the phone, he says, Christopher, I want you to do that part. The second part, Ben Buford, second part in the movie. At that moment, I, I thought to myself, oh, this is brilliant. He's great because, because they're going to give me the part. It's just like that. Just like that. Without even reading, he said, Don't worry about reading. I want you to do that part. So we're going to send you the papers. If you want to do it, send you the papers, sign you up and everything like that. And I said, 
yell, yeah, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. I hung up the phone and went, yeah, this is good. I thought I, I thought I did myself in completely, but I didn't. I said, that was a great, that great audition I had. Once in a while, I would actually do something like that. It works out for them, right? It works out for them. They, they get, they get ornery and say, no, I don't want to do this part. Get out of here. And throw the script away and walk out of the office. You know, and then someone will come running down the hall and say, hey, come, come, come on, my head. We want you to do the part. Come on, we want you to do it. Right. Like that. Beverly, Beverly beg you that. And that's what happened. Gordon Parks called me at night. And I swear to you, because I, I was in bad spirits that when that happened, I said, hey, why, why did you do that? Why did you behave like that? Right. And it's, it's because my spirit wants want to be the lead actor. I'm more important than some cheap second fiddle kind of guy. You know, I'm more important than that. That's what I thought. Right. So anyway, that's how I got the part in Shaft. And, and I remember thinking right after Gordon Parks hung up, I said, yeah, okay, send me the paperwork and everything. I hung, hung up. I, I remember, oh, God, this is great. I got a part in Shaft. It's like that. I believe I have to read. This is a wonderful thing. And that kind of stuff right now. <laughs> right? And, and anyway, that's how that happened. But then the, the movie Shaft taught me a lesson. Taught me a lesson that I, that, that, that I had, to, had to learn. And, and that's what was good about it. That's the good part about it. Taught me what I had to learn. That's why I never, they never called me back to work in another Shaft movie. They did three, three, three movies of Shaft, right? They never called me back, and because when when that first movie came out, critics said Christopher St. John should have played Shaft, and the re- reason why is because they thought that Richard Roundtree was um, not authentic. They thought I had a more kind of a persona that would make Shaft, you know, more powerful and strong. And he does, he doesn't BS. He doesn't BS like that. He doesn't go around like, and, and I call it that. It, people said that Richard Roundtree was like a, a toy, like, like a toy. It wasn't, it wasn't real, real to them and so, so forth, you know, and like that. So and that's how, that's why I was never called back being another Shaft movie. So, one night, I'm sitting at home thinking, I'm going to do a movie. How can I do a movie? Right? And and I'm sitting there, it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm looking at television, and I see this um, space, this space picture on television. This guy, this guy, this astronaut, he's lost in some, on some planet, right? And then you have an old raggedy space suit on and everything like that, and he's a white dude, and he didn't know he was just rolling around on the planet. He didn't know what to do about anything, you know. And I'm, I'm looking at it. I well, I wonder what he's doing, you know. And then I, then I said, terrible. It's a terrible movie, right? That's when Alpha Heat came up. I looked at it and I said, that was a black guy on, on some planet. Just being the black guy, it would be a little more interesting than this guy. Because this guy, he was doing, was doing nothing. Who cared, right? So that's why I started to write Top of the Heap. And I think that I wrote I wrote Top of the Heap in Shake Time. I I had a and I called it Top Top of the Heap because of Frank Sinatra. I like that song that he sang where he said, New York, New York, to the top of the heap. Like that. I said, I like that 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 that, that title. He said, Top of the Heap. And I I already think of it like Top of the Heap. 
bottom of the barrel, top of the heap, bottom of the barrel. I thought of it like that. That is worked well together like that. Or she saw so that when 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 I started writing that movie, I, I chose the title "Top of the Heap" because of, of what it meant to me to be at the top of the heap meant. You could be at the top of the heap, but you could also be at the bottom of the barrel. The opposite of that was the bottom of the barrel, right? So I said, well, that's who I am. I could be at the top of the heap, but I know that in reality, right now in life, I'm really at the bottom of the barrel because I'm a black guy walking around in this society, and they want to kick my butt all the time, but I'm not going to let them because, because, uh, because, because, because I'm going to make them care about me in some way. It makes them like me in some way because that's the only way I know I can get through. Right, I didn't want to get be sent back home. So I started writing Top of the Heat, and, uh, it, and I realized that that was, I made Top of the Heat 12 years before they ever had a black astronaut. 12 years before, right? And to some way, I had this fascination with space. I don't know what it was, but I had this fascination with space. I think it was because I thought to myself, I would think about myself, I'm I'm going to go to the top, mama. I'm going to go to the top. It's not going to stop me. You know, it's not going to stop me. She's so, so I, I thought about it. I didn't know what, I'm going to go to the top. But I also knew that I was at the bottom also because I'm black. So, so that's what they think, right? So on the top of the heap, and I wrote it in about, uh, I don't know, six weeks, something like that, or quicker. And, and then, I, I started to um, to go around to try to sell it. I called a producer. I sent it to a producer who said to me, uh, I went to see, see him, and he said to me, yeah, I kind of like your script, but uh, I think you should change the last or not to a baseball player, because that's something that you can be. I said, no, I, no, no, I can be an excellent if I want. What the hell's wrong with you? Why would you say it to me? Right? And was grabbed up by the column. The shake of me out. Say, what the hell would you, what are you talking about? It's a big tradition. And so then I walked away and I found this, and, and then I put it on the paper. And this um, this guy called me, his, his name was Joe Solomon, a big a guy that done a lot of movies, a lot of low budget movies, a crook, you know, just a big crook. But he did movies. He did the Evil Knievel movie, right? He did a lot of movies about gangsters and stuff like that, right? But for some reason, I guess he wanted a black movie because he read my script and he called me. And so we go in there and, and I go in there and I, I, I walk into his office and I have the script here. And I say, okay, uh, turn, turn your phone off. Don't answer the phone while I'm here talking to you because you'll just be distracted, right? So he goes, uh, you take your phone off. And I went through the entire script. I asked every part. I did every part of it. In the, in the script, I did my part. I did this this part, my partner's part. I did the woman's part. I did the little kids' part. I did everything, you know, the whole thing. And and then after we're actually after I finished, I was in this office on the uh, nine ninety two hundred building, California. It pulls out his checkbooks, starts running a check. It must be a check for twenty five thousand dollars, right? Just like that, right? And and he said. Yeah, let's do this movie, right? And I go, yeah, let's do this movie, right? It just happened. I swear to God, that's the way it happened. It happened just like that, right? I remember going home, and I had no money at that time. I, had, I was broke by that. I was in, in, in a little apartment in the, in Venice Beach, on Venice Beach. And, and I, drove, I drove in. Wow, man, I'm going to do this movie. 
you know, and then, and, 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 and I told him at the time, I said, no, I'm going to write this movie. I'm going to, I'm going to act in it. I'm going to direct it. And I'm, I want to be the producer. He said, okay. And that's how I got that arranged like that. Right. Because so I'm saying to myself, I, I knew how, how to do all that stuff because I knew how to disconnect myself from being the actor to being the producer, from being the writer, the, the, I knew how to, how to, how to compartmentalize everything so that I could be able to do all those parts. It just came the natural thing. I, I don't know why, but it just did. It just did. I guess I don't know why. It just happened that way. I could, I could think like that, right? If I was doing something as a producer, I knew enough to include other people into what I was doing with the, with the assurance that I wanted their help. I want you to help, you know, that's what we're doing here. We're working together. And I think I, I learned how to do that because I knew you have to work with people. You have to work with each other in order to do something good, right? When, when you don't work together and you try to do something, there's always backstabbing and people trying to do you in and stuff like that. And that's what happened a lot in Hollywood. That's why I do so many movies that turn out to be ragged, ragged ass movies because they don't work together because this guy hates that guy and this woman hates that woman, never, and everybody hates each other, you know, and you cannot function in a good way to do something good that means something in the world if you don't work together. That's all it comes down to. And, you know, in the end, it's all it comes down to. And I knew that. I really knew that. So, so therefore, that's how I got, when I finally got Top of the Heap up, up and running, you know, the only thing that happened one day I was in, my trailer uh, uh, on, on, on location where we were shooting. I think I was shooting the scene where I was getting made to, uh, to uh, I'd run back home to visit my, my hometown after I became famous as, a, as, a, as an astronaut, right? In terms of movie language, right? And, and I'd gone back home. I got a telegram in the movie. I'd gotten a telegram from somebody from, the, from the, my, my hometown who said, we would like you to come home. And, and because since you went to the moon, so I thought, and that's why I said, so, it's great, right? So uh, they invited me home. I, I, I arrived there, and uh, nobody there. Nobody at the home, my hometown, to welcome me, right? And so, and, 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 and to me, I was doing something again to change the world. That's all I had in my mind all the time. What I have in my mind now, today, I still think that, that that's my job on the planet, to find a way to change the world. And now I, I, I know at this point in time, when you talk about changing the world, you do what you can to change that person and that person and that school and that school. And little by little, you, you will touch a lot of people who also will have the same idea in their mind. Do something good to change the world. Don't live in a world that's so screwed up that, 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 that you become just a screwed up person. When I look at the world now, it's, it is screwed up. It's completely screwed up. We know it. Everybody knows it, right? The politicians are crazy people, and they do terrible things to each other, right? And there's a small group of people who, are, who still want to think that we can change all this and make it something great as it should be, right? The world. And so... So when, when, when I remember that the guy, uh, the, the, the producer, when I started doing the film, and we even had a, 
some friendly, real friendly moments. And we went to a trip together and driving from, uh, from, uh, in California, driving to San Francisco, where he had to go up there for some business. He said, yeah, come on, ride along with me. We'll, we'll have lunch and this, that, and that. That's a, it was a great day, right? But then I'm doing this movie and I'm doing this scene where I ride with his hometown, my hometown, right? And by then he's begun to realize, well, this is not, not the kind of movie I thought it was. It's not just because his whole idea was this. He said to me, he said to me, I just want 90 minutes of niggas running around on the screen. That's all I want. That's how he actually said that to me, right? I remember listening to him say that, and, and I thought to myself, I mean, he's just ignorant, that's all. He's just ignorant. You know, you can't have 90 million niggas walk away around the street and think that they, they, they do something great. You know, I'm thinking to myself, hey, you don't understand it, but I'm going to do something great. And so uh, I just proceeded on my way to do what I was doing, right? And knowing that uh, I I didn't get in my way as I got this opportunity, right? Just until he did like that. So he he comes to the set one day. And I'm getting ready to shoot the scene where I, I find my mother I, I go back to my hometown in Alabama. And Alabama, by the way, is, uh, had represented in my life during the course of my whole life this place that was um, a terrible place for black people. And that, that's all it ever represented to me, right? And I, I, other stories I've written had to do with Alabama and, and all that kind of stuff. And so anyway, so I'm going back home, I'm sitting in my trailer and trying to get, get myself ready to go out on, on the set and, and do this scene for me, difficult scene, because I had to, I had to weep and cry and all that kind of stuff like that. And he showed, this guy showed up, this Joe Solomon guy shows up, and, and he's, 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 he knocks on my training door, knocks on the door, he said, he said, hey, kid, what the hell is going on in here? What kind of movie is this, right? I said, oh, I knew right, I knew right away I had a problem. But he said, what kind of movie is this? I told you what kind of movie I want, you know? And so I said, look, look, I'm busy right now. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm trying to prepare for shoot the scene. And he kept going, kept going, kept going. And I got some guys and said, please take him and drag him off the set. Get him out of here. Get him out of here complete. They're, uh, they're dragging him away. They're dragging him away. And he's yelling at me. He's, he said, I, I don't want to try to move. I don't want this movie. What the hell is this movie about? And all. I'm thinking to myself, wrote me a check. A movie for you. You have it in your hand. You saw it. And they were, I don't know. What are you doing? That, that, that kind of stuff, right? So, so I got these guys. They were happy to drag them off the set. They drag them off the set, and they put them in the car and said, you get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here, right? And I remember going back to my, sitting in my dressing room going, oh, God. And I almost started trying right then, right? Because this has happened. And then, and then I went out to do the scene, and I realized that. It was a person in perfect study for me to be able to do the scene because I had go out my trailer and I drove. I'm in the middle of the street and 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 then I'm saying, "Where is everybody? My hometown. Where is everybody? Where are you? There's nobody here. What the hell? I'm using language. We we I'm really going at it. I'm really saying, dirty motherfuckers. You set it up, bitches. You like that? I'm really going at it." And, and 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 then I, I see the the stew here and it's playing America the Beautiful and this little record player that nothing Lewis puts on this play America the Beautiful and the, and and nobody's there and they have plans up all over the place and everything and then I 
I see somebody way down the street, way, way down the street, and, 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 and I start running down the street, and, and, I, and I get closer, and it's my mother, sitting in a laughing chair. I, I had gone there for a funeral, for her funeral, funeral in, in the movie, in my mind, I had gone for a funeral, and this woman is sitting in a chair, and she's representing, she's my mother, and I go there, and I, ride, I ran up to her, and she's sitting in the chair, and by then I was completely broken, I was kneeling down, she knew what had happened, and she started whispering to me. And you can't hear this in the movie, but she started whispering to me. She basically said to me, don't let them get to you. Don't let them destroy you. You're a great man. And she's saying things like that to me. We're whispering, which is not the dialogue in the movie, but she was saying it to me as a mother to a son, you know. And I said, Mama, Mama, I walked out of the room. I walked on the moon. That's where that came in. Right? That's how that happened. And I just, I just started crying like a little baby. And I, I knew, as I was talking to my own mother, right? Who had died some years before. I told my own mother, I walked on the moon, right? Which represented to me that I got to the highest pinnacle, the highest pinnacle that I promised I would get to, you know? And I don't know what's going to happen from here, but I walked on the moon, right? And then, and then I managed to be able to do that scene that way without women helping me, you know. And and she was just an actor I hired, right, to be in, to play that part. And then and and I get up and I start dancing with her, just dancing in the middle of the street. And and, uh, and then I, I spin around and I turn around. There was a very young African woman in African clothing standing in the street, and she I'm dancing with her now. Right, and going back in time. So, and that's how I managed to get through that scene. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, Joe Solomon, I'm glad you came today. I'm glad you came here today because uh, you are able to inspire me to do what I had to do to realize that the people like him, like Joe Solomon, that I was fighting against all my life. So, so I, uh, I managed to get through that, and I did that movie, and and uh, I managed to finish the movie. And there's probably some other things that I should tell you about that. But anyway, Top of the Heap was really born, right? And and when 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 it when it came out, I, I remember there were I had two children in the movie. I had uh, a young girl who was about I think she was about fifteen, fourteen to fifteen, and I had a little boy who who was uh he was I think he was about seven or eight years old, right? And Joe Solomon, I didn't, the only thing I didn't get was the right to edit the movie exactly as I wanted to edit. And he wanted to hurt me. He, he, he got pissed off at me about what happened. He wanted to hurt me. And so he did things in the movie that he, that he hoped would hurt me, right? And, but, 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 the, but the truth is, is that I, I, I remember thinking to myself, don't shoot too much because... Then they got too too much to to take take out and as when you made made mistakes and so on and so forth. So and and that kind of worked for me. But then when they were editing, I remember going there and and what was the editor and saying to him, "I know I don't think you should do a cut that way." I said, "Where's my son? Where's my son in there? You know and everything. Where, where's the, this scene? Why are you cutting this scene so short? It's stupid. You're making the movie stupid, right?" And he said. The boss, the boss told me to do this. Right? Someday he told me to do this. They said, and the hell with the boss. 
I'm the boss. It's my life, right? And by turning like that, see, so, but they, but they, but they got me. They got me. See, so when it was done and, and, and it was released, I was like, point in time, I was so hurt by it, by what they did. I admit, I was going to steal it. I know one day I went to the studio at 20th Century Fox, I was going to steal everything from the editing room. And I remember going there and I, I should dye my scar around there. I was going to steal everything, put it in my scar, just take it away. And then I thought, yeah, no, if I do that, they're going to call the cops. The cops are going to come and arrest me. There'll be a big stake in Hollywood that the crazy filmmaker did this, did that, and everything like that. So I can't do that. I remember walking with my head down and saying, well, they did me in. But then when it was released, I was surprised that it got some really good reviews, really, really good reviews, a few very hateful reviews, and, and then I said, I learned how people who are critics who hate you because they hate you, and that in my case, they hated me as a black man here saying the things I was saying and doing the things I was doing, and, and, and certain bad reviews came from people like that, and, and I recognized that. I kind of certain few really fantastic reviews. Right, I'm going like, no surprise, right? But then I, I get bad, and you know what happened when you read the bad reviews? They seem to hurt you a lot more than the other things, right? People say bad things about you, but they can call calling you a name, calling you a bad name, right? You know, and or and then so people who wrote bad reviews, there was only a few of them, but but they affected me very deeply, right? But then uh, I remember during the time. That uh, Admiral Snow, it got to the Berlin Film Festival. Somebody must have, I don't know how, I think somebody came to me and said something to me, and I said, Yeah, 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 sure. Right? And I no, walked away, right? Sure, great. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do it. And, and they had a copy of the movie, went to the Berlin Film Festival. I didn't even understand the significance of that. I was so brokenhearted that I thought they ruined my movie. I was so brokenhearted that I, uh, I didn't pay attention to it. But years later, uh, when I realized that the story was that they, sh- they showed the film several different times because they want, people wanted to see it at the Berlin Film Festival. It was up against major international filmmakers, right? And, and see, the guy that won that year... 1972, I can't remember his name right now, but if you look at it, you'll find that he was a, a big-time filmmaker. So there was, there, all, there I was, Top of the Heat, had, 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 the whole thing had been boiled down to about 10, 10 films to win the Golden Bear, right? And Top of the Heat was one of those. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how did that happen, right? When I realized the significance of it, right? And, 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 uh, and, and I came in, Really close, but I thought that because I was up against major world worldwide filmmakers from around the world, that man, it's great. It, I don't know how I did this, but that's great. That, that's it's a blessing in disguise, right? And and also, I had the guy from um, the Cannes Film Festival had, had come to, to see the film, and and he wanted to go to, to the Cannes Film Festival, and I made the mistake of mentioning it to Joe Sauerman. 
And he said, hell no, you're not there to take a damn film. They'll take some high fruit and stuff, and the niggas won't go and see it. That's what he said. I swear to you, that's what he said. Looked at him like, are you crazy? What are you, crazy? You know? And that's why it didn't get to the Cannes Film Festival, because he put a kibosh on it, right? But somehow I managed to get it to the Berlin Film Festival, and, and I came close to winning. I said, my God, this is really right. But just going there and realizing the context of the story about what happened there, I was like, wow, that's pretty great for me, you know? So, so then, okay, so then the movie is out there. But somehow when they started this, when they started this uh, black film boom, right? And all the, all those films that they were making, what do they call them now? The films that, um, that were all the black films were being, being made and they were, and they were, and they were, and, and, Topic became part of that, which I knew wasn't part of that. Somebody had said it was it was a movie that Topic was a movie that was um, um, supposed to go here, but somehow it was sent here, right? And it was in the wrong place. It was just in the wrong place, and that's how it became one of those um, black film movies that that they did. They did about I don't know how I many did about four hundred, seven hundred movies. I don't know how many movies they did. During that, during that period of time, because the Hollywood Hollywood was hurting, the studios were hurting, and they, they thought they should make some money, some money to, to be able to get through this cycle of change. And then when they were ready to stop it, they would stop it because they didn't want black people to get too much, too much recognition that they could go on their own, so to speak, right? And that's kind of that's kind of what it was, right? So my film was in there, and there's nothing I could do about it. And, and it was just, I knew it shouldn't be there, but it was there. So uh, people would call me and say, this movie doesn't belong there. So other filmmakers. There was one filmmaker who, um, at the very beginning, and, and, and I was uh, bluffing hard about the whole thing that happened. And he would call me all the time. And... and uh, I know him. I can't remember his name right now, but he would call me all the time, and uh, and say, um, he said, "Listen, you 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 got a special movie. You got a special movie. You have to recognize that, right?" And he was a filmmaker himself, right? You have to recognize. Let me take out his name right here. Well, wait a minute. There was this. There was this guy, Nicholas Rapol, who's a film historian. He's the one that made this really happen big time because. Somehow he saw the movie somewhere. Years later, he saw it and he said, this is, this is a very different movie. This is not a black exploitation movie. This is a, something special. And so he started looking at it and, and, and he started calling me, right? I wouldn't pay attention to him at first. But then somebody said, this guy is a, he's a, film, he's a, he's a film historian. You got to listen to him. So he started, so we started communicating. He started calling, calling me, and for a year, he would he would call. We would talk about top of the heap, about my life, about everything, about top of, top of the heap, right? And 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 I would tell him how I got it done, what it did to me emotionally, what it did to me, what it did to my family. The, the movie was really about my brother. My brother was a shop in Connecticut. My brother was a shop in Connecticut, and he tried to um, he tried to arrest. I'm saying the wrong classic story. 
because of that movie, right? And and now it's reached a level that it has that that kind of, that kind of thing happening with it. It j- just propels people to realize that this is a classic movie, right? So then, when not tomorrow, when the after it played, it played at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, right? It's very that that that's a historic place in Brooklyn, right? And it kind of found found out they was going to play there. And, and I said, well, nobody told me about this. And then I realized that they thought I was dead, right? And this guy thought I was dead. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he had to quit me uh, from, from some company in, in, in England. You know, he had a beautiful new print of property made. And, and then and they, and, and he was going to show it at the, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and which did play it for two weeks. It did very, very well. And, and I'm going like... Yeah, so I had to call him up and say, I had, hey, had to tell him that, hey, I'm still alive. You have no right to do this unless I give you my permission. I'm still alive, right? And the, and the guys are all the, the direction of the school road. Oh, I didn't know that. They didn't tell me. They didn't, they didn't tell me that you were, I thought you were dead. I said, no, I'm still alive. You hear me, right? It's just. So we started talking about everything like that, and they showed the movie. But I, I appreciate it because, again, it started the, it started the, a lot of chatter about it. And the most strangest thing, a guy at the New York Times, the New York Times was a critic for the New York Times. He pulled out the review from the guy who wrote the review 50 years ago. 50 years ago, he pulled out that review from the New York Times and just sort of wrote what he what, what that guy wrote 50 years ago, right? And you know it was a whole different time in history. It was a time when the white people were putting on black people wherever they could, right? And certain black, certain white people were doing that all the time, you know? And I, I met a bunch of white, white people who were like really good human beings, that they understood that this is all, that's all nonsense. You can't listen to people like that. How could they be a critic? How can they be a critic and talk like that? How could they be a critic and put down somebody's work when when, when it has just depth, depth of meaning and all that kind of stuff like that? So, so, so that happened recently. That happened recently, but what, about about a year ago now, two years ago, or something like that. You know when that happened about a year ago when they played at Academy of Music and and and, and this guy rewrites the article. The, the negative article critique that the that, that the guy wrote fifty years ago, and I'm thinking to myself, who in the world world did anybody do that to themselves to take something that they've written fifty years ago and know it's a whole different time in life, a whole different time in the relationship of, of white people to black people and, and what black people were trying to do and so on and so forth. They were still getting the butt shit, you know, and then and then then he had to write that stuff all, all over again, right? So somebody, Richard Brody, at the time, I think I think he got in touch with him and said some things to him about it. You know that terrible, stupid thing things you said, right? But by then it got gotten out in the New York Times, and um, and uh, but but again, the people at CBS, CBS in New York, Morning News, Dale King, and and her people, they heard about it and they sent somebody. To Brooklyn Academy of Music to see it, right? And then they wanted me to come on the show. So I, I'm going to go on the show, but 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 I've been putting it off until until I can co- coordinate everything with 
with um, my, my new movie, Avatar Mania, which is going to open in New York. No. Through the holidays, I couldn't do anything. For the last three months, four months, I couldn't do hardly do anything because, because it was a bowling season and Thanksgiving and Christmas and this one and that one, New Year's, everything. Now we're working on a whole different level to get, to get that movie done. But, but uh, at the same time, you know that uh, I, I don't really want to talk about it, except to say to you that uh, I'm not having a problem now with uh, James Cameron. And this is just an strange thing that happened. Years ago, I hadn't even finished my movie, Avatar Mania. Hadn't even finished. I went to India and made a movie. I went, you know, I went to India and made this movie, right? And it's, to me, it's a thousand times better than Top of the Heat, right? And I went there and I made this movie and I was in the midst of a lot of bad things that had happened to the first of life. And I had put it on the shelf and not worked on it for years. Just better sit there, you know, because I wasn't in emotional shape to want to work on my marriage broke up, all kinds of stuff like that. So I remember putting an ad in the newspaper, the, the, um, the Daily Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, right? And I had a newspaper that I had the movie, it's called Avatar Mania, blah, 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 blah. And what happens to me? I get this threatening letter from James Cameron and 20th Century Fox. They threatened me every, every which way but left. They threatened me all kinds of different ways. You know, threatened to do this and do that to me. And, that. and I'm thinking to myself, what are they talking about? What are they talking about? The two, James Cameron's a billionaire. Twenty Century Fox is a multi-billionaire. They got all the money in the world. And they're going to beat up on me? I said, go fuck yourselves, right? And, but I had this material they sent me. I still have it. I still have this material that I say, right? And so, and I said, who do they think they are? That they can just jump on somebody and then claim to own everything. I said, you don't own me. You don't even own the word avatar. I, I avatar is a Sanskrit word. You know, it, it has nothing to do with you. you. You use it as a title of a movie, right? And, and you can say that you own it, but I know you don't own it. I don't, I don't care if you own it anyway, because if you want to talk about anything, I used it first. <laughs> I've been working on this movie for since 1980. See, it was 1980. And so I, I think it was meant to be my PS de resistance. I think that's what it was meant to be, right? Because the movie has all kinds of stuff in it that is happening now, right now in life. And I'm, I think to myself, I didn't know that then. Back then, I didn't know it, but as the years passed, I began to realize that that the spirit, the spirit of, of who I am, the spirit that, that moves my life, is telling me what to do with this thing, how to handle it, and so on and so forth. And that's why that, that it's, it's happening now. That's why it's happening now. And I realize everything comes to its time sooner or later. Everything comes to its time. It doesn't matter. I, I remember the guy did the movie about about from Muhammad Ali. You know, he did did that guy he didn't move about Muhammad Ali and he couldn't sell it for nothing, right? And, and he, he tried to sell it for twenty years, twenty five years, something like that. He couldn't sell it. And then one day, one day just he just sold it. Just like that. It happened, right? And I don't know why it took so long, but she said, I don't know. I just kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. And one day somebody realized this is a valuable piece of work, right? 
you know, and so that's what it is. You have to find the right people. Because a lot of people are stupid and don't know anything. They just don't know anything about 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 life, about what we're doing. You know, that's why I would never go back to Hollywood because um because I, I think a lot of the stuff they do is just kind of stupid. It's just stupid stuff. You know, what I mean, it doesn't. A lot of it doesn't help anybody, but a lot of it creates a situation where they become become more destructive than anything else. I can't believe that Hollywood does something that's so freaking destructive. Tearing the, the country apart, tearing the world apart, right? But they still do it every day and think that they're doing great stuff. I can't, I look at them and go, wow, man, I can't believe that you think that this is great stuff. It's, it's crap, pure crap. And, and you've got to know that, right? If you don't know that, what do you know? And they can put people like me down. They can, they can say, well, yeah, I'm gonna trying to get my movie in the Academy Awards. They won't really talk to me. I call them up. They want to talk to me. And I, I just started thinking, I wonder if they're trying to protect James Cameron. I don't know. You know, he's a Academy Award winner for his movie, Avatar. I wonder if they're trying to protect me. I mean, protect him, you know, and they won't even talk to me, you know, because I say to them things like, and by the way, you kept black people out of the Academy Awards for generations. And the way you did it was by, they, they cost so much money to get in there that they couldn't get in anyway. You know, because you get some brothers from from the ghetto who somehow put together a movie, and they have any money money to get in the Academy Awards, right? So a lot of recently in life, they would they would go like, "Well, we gotta let we gotta let we gotta let, them in. We gotta let some black people in. We gotta let them in." But then if they let black people in, and Will Smith goes up there, does his thing, which is crazy thing. And you know, on the Academy Awards, you know, you know, see, that's what happens, man. When you give, when you give a breath an inch, you go take a mile. That, that, that's just all that happens. So anyway, anyway, man, so Top of the Heap is living its second life. It is. It's sibling's second life. We're going to show it again. I think we're going to show it again at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Again, because, um, we're going to show it because we never got a chance to have a open discussion about it with, with 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 people. All they did was see the movie, right? And some review that somebody made. But I think that it's important. I always thought it's important to be able, be able to have some kind of open discussion about it. Well the reason this was done is because of this. The reason this the reason this happened because of this happened, right? And the reason I said this is because it had to be said. And the reason that, that that didn't win everything in the world because this white producer did this and this and this to the movie. He was trying to destroy it in some way, but he wasn't quite sure what how to destroy it. In some ways, he actually helped me <laughs> because you could see that he was doing some obvious. He tried to destroy the movie, but you know, and and for instance, uh, I, like I said, I had a little kid in the movie, and I wanted to use that to be able to 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 say to my wife, I uh, I. I understand now. I have a daughter who got all messed up. I didn't know what I was doing. But my, my son, I know a little more about my life now, you know, and I want to help him become a good man, right? But I was not able to do that because Joe Solomon, he cut it out of the movie. He cut, he cut that part, the, the son, my son, out of the movie. And he did it purposely to, to hurt me. You know, it's was, it was almost like he was a real son who got taken away from me, right? It really hurt, you know, but I always wanted to do a, 
restore that, but I, I don't know if I can or not because I don't know I don't know where the parts are and all that kind of jazz like that. So I have to accept, accept what that what it is and be able to talk about it in some way, some other way, you know. So and so anyway, I just want to tell you that um, a lot of it is about my it's about my family and everything. It is because, like I said, it's but it's really about my brother. What happened to him? It's about my other brothers. What happened to them? It's about my family. What happened to them? It's about me. How I got to where I got to, and about 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 all the hurt and pain that we all went through, and the hurt and pain that I going through, and and how I was able to recover from that somehow, right? And I still go through. I still go through it because a lot of that stuff is in your DNA. You know, it's just just there. It's just there. And and you, uh, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about all the terrible things that happened in the course of life, right? And I, and I also think about how I was able to be strong enough and and and, and had enough good sense to, to 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 work with people that uh, that that I, I, I that, that encouraged me in, in in a good way in a good way. I was just from the time that I got into the actor's studio and um, and and I met people like uh, Al Pacino and people like that, and and, and I can remember Bobby De Niro. He didn't. He didn't talk to me, by the way. Now, for some reason, I guess he's he became too famous or something like that. But but I remember him and I used to hang around in New York together, right? And and one Thanksgiving, uh, he had no place to go. I don't know what happened in his family. I don't know what was happening. But I remember that I had him come to my 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 little apartment with my lady at the time, and we had Thanksgiving together. You know that kind of stuff like that. And then. When he started working, and I had moved to California, and I had a house in, I think it was in or Malibu, something like that, that he would come out and stay with me in, in my house when he came to California. He would stay with me, and then all of a sudden, he just blew up in terms of uh, his career, right? And after that, he wouldn't talk to me anymore. I think it would be because um, they were doing a drug era. Edward was smoking marijuana and stuff like that, right? And he he, he was too. But but you know. But then when you, when you start to work, you realize, oh, that's got to go. It's all got to go. You can't do that stuff anymore, right? Clear-minded, clear-headed, and and like that. So I remember he came to California, and uh, and we, we were together because he had a he had a black girlfriend. And I had a white girlfriend, right? So down the kind of connect, this connection we had there. And so he, he he said, "No, I don't, I don't touch that stuff anymore. I don't touch. I don't touch uh, anything anymore, right? At all, right?" And he he was a, a big druggie way back, right? And he said, "I don't touch that stuff anymore." And I said, "Okay, and I understand. That's that, you know." And so I I then talked to him. I'd never talked to him long, long time, right? Long years. And funny part about it, he's where I am right now in Cincinnati. He's uh, doing a movie. He's doing a movie, a new movie. He's doing a new movie, and, and not too far from where I am. I know where I knew where the location is and everything like that, but I can't go see him because I ain't going to knock on the door and say, hey, Bob, what's happening, man? You know, and, he, and he'll, sure, it'll upset him in some way, right? Because of the fact that 
he kind of just um, threw me away completely in the course of life. So, but that's all right. I don't know. It, it's all for a purpose. It's all for a purpose because I, I guess I didn't want to lean on anyone else because it would change the nature of my work. It would change the nature of what I'm thinking about doing, right? It was, if I wanted to lean on him, because he has all the money in the world and so on and so forth, it would change the nature of who I am, right? So I know that my, my point in life, what I have to do is to continue on my work and to do what I got. I still, I still have one more movie to do that, that, that I got ready to shoot it. And then the pandemic started, and I and I couldn't leave the house. See, so most of the time, I'm, I stay at home all the time. I don't leave the house. So I stay at home I'm writing, writing and stuff like that. And I'm happy to be at home because I'm I'm preparing on my my autobiography and stuff like that. Which, like I said, I want to do it on stage. But also, there are a few other things I'm doing that uh, I said, okay, I can't do that. But I got to do my last movie because it involves me looking for my graves of my mother and father in Connecticut because I don't know where their graves are. So it's a, it's a, the movie that's part fiction, but reality, but reality also, you know, I've looked for their graves because you know, I haven't been there for a long, long time and I still have uh, a lot of family members who grew up in Connecticut and uh, because that's where everything started for me. It's like that. See, so I'm just... Doing whatever I can right now with my life and hoping that I live long enough to be able to finish everything I'm trying to finish. The library in my town, in, in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, has started a vision for myself, my son, Christoph, and I have a place in the library where they have everything about his career, everything about my career in the library. I didn't even know they were doing that doing that until I found out about a year or two ago, you know, throw shit. Oh, as I get all my material together, I, I'll, I'll, I'll make copies and give them to you so you can get them in the library so that uh, people in Connecticut or whoever, uh, they know they can always go to the Central Library and then find out whatever stuff I might have done, what my life is like, so I went from here to here, that kind of jazz like that. So I'm doing that. That's what they're going there with Top of the Heap. There's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it in terms of my life story, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it's way too much to, to do here. And I just want to give you kind of a capsule idea of what went on, how it was created, how it was created. And it was created really by the little kid from Bridgeport, Connecticut, who was scared out of his mind about everything, but somehow, somehow was able to walk around in a kind of a mute kind of way and grow up and little by little. I began to think, I'm going to save the world. And that's what the Top of the Heap was for.
are back and we were talking about Top of the Heap. And it is amazing, the dearth of information about this film. I hope that that interview shed a lot of light on what went on behind the scenes of this film. But really, this movie, I mean, it should have put him on the map. And it's such a shame that it didn't. By all rights, by all, yeah, by all good graces, this, this should have, yeah, this should have, you know, set him up. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It definitely reminds me of when you hear Sam Greenlee talk about the spook who sat behind the door. And I know that's a different situation where the movie didn't succeed because the FBI are fucking terrible. But it's still like to hear him talk about it in more recent years in interviews, it's clear that like none of those emotions have faded at all. Well, last month when I spoke to Julian Compton, who was out making independent films, much like St. John, eventually goes to Hollywood. She's relegated to writing screenplays. They won't give her a shot to direct. When she finally does, they end up making her change the end of the script. And she's still bitter about it all of these all years, years later. later. Sure, sure. To hear these stories of St. John as well, talking about how the he in the movie, he had a son. And they cut out the sun completely. And the way that this movie is edited, you could have done anything with this. We've, we go all over the place with these fantasies and everything. So it's like, what else could have been in this movie? That was one reason too, why I was tracking down lobby cards, because there's a lot of times where it's like shots in the lobby cards aren't in the movie. And I was wondering if it was one of these, but everything's there. It looks like, but, but it sounds like this was not maybe radically different. I'm very curious what his original vision of this was if, and what that son character would have been like. I mean, he's got enough trouble on his hands with the daughter, but then he also had the son. And now you've got this whole, somebody who looks up to me and I'm supposed to be a a male role model for this character. Isn't there at one point they mentioned and it's all, it's almost even a side, like they mentioned, they have two kids. But you're right. You only see you always you just always see the dog. But I think at some point they mentioned that they have the two children. But you're right. You never you never see the son because of the way the movie focuses so much on traditional masculinity and how men are supposed to behave and what men are supposed to do. It seems like it would have been pretty important to see him interacting with his son. There's that whole thing too in one of the dream dream sequences where he's in a hospital bed. And apparently he's had to eject out of his, uh, maybe his plane. I mean, because we don't see any of it. We just see him in the bed. And that great moment of him and his sergeant, well, Walsh, I think it is, and how there's a light between them. And he's got the star filter going on the, the camera lens. So it's like a star between them. And then... um he talks to his sergeant and he says uh, that there was a voice telling him to get out of the machine. And it just kept saying, get out of the machine. And it's kind of reminiscent of when earlier on he receives a phone call in one of his dreams. And it's just this voice, kind of like a Dick Laurent is dead going, your mother has died. And it's like, <laughs> um, so it's like the, almost like supernatural forces out there controlling some of these things, like this, these mysterious voices that tell George what to do. And that great, uh, is Swedish nurse that just is helpless at his command. Yeah, I wonder if David Lynch saw this. Yeah, that would be chippy though, huh? That would be great. That would be great, yes. That would be. Uh, yeah, I wonder how hard it would have been to see in the late 70s. Oh, yeah. I know. Sure, yeah. 
Yeah. I, I wonder how this movie moved around. Like you were saying, Gary, I don't know who saw this, when they saw it, where it played. This was just one of those like footnotes that I saw a lot in different articles and stuff about black exploitation movies. And again, you see the poster and you're just like, oh man, this looks like a kick-ass exploitation film. And you watch it and you're just like, what the hell am I watching? I don't know, but I love it. You know, I love but it. I, exactly. I could see a lot of people coming out of this theater, uh, probably not even making it past the halfway mark, half hour mark and being like, what the fuck was this? If anybody who loved The Exorcist figured out that William Peter Blatty made this other movie called Ninth Configuration and they were like, oh, this is totally going to be like The Exorcist. And then it's like, no, actually. Again, very weird film, but I love it so much. It's one of those movies that as I was watching it the first time, I think because I expected it to be maybe a more conventional crime film, I was a little, I don't want to say a little disappointed, but a little bit like it just wasn't what I was expecting. But by the end, I I just like, I think finally got with its vibe. And, and since I first watched it, it's one of those movies that will just like pop into my head at random times. And to me, that's sort of the true sign that I really like a movie is is when I keep thinking about all the things it's trying to do. It's very ambitious. Yes, it is. Yeah. That's right. If I had to, to do a, uh, a double feature, I would probably watch this with Head, just the way that Head jumps around. And Head has its own internal logic. We kind of revisit things as we go through it. Just that style of montage, I think, reminds me of that. But it, it's definitely a different animal than Head because it, it it does tell a more, well, it tells a narrative. You know, there's not necessarily a narrative to Head. It's more themes, skits, those kind of things. But this one, there's definitely a lot, and there's a lot of narrative that that he's trying to give to us in, just in a very unusual way. And man, do I appreciate it. Yeah, so impressive. And I truly don't understand why this doesn't have a, some kind of restored fancy Blu-ray with loads of special features and a documentary, and it deserves it. For the record, Top of the Heap was released on Blu-ray by Code Red in 2017 but is now out of print. The sole extra on the disc was the trailer, and the legality of the release is unsure. Like I said, I don't know who owns the rights to this, and I don't know if he knows who owns the rights to it. It might be one of those that's just kind of fallen through the cracks, but yeah, I somebody's got to rescue this. Somebody's got to bring this out, and yeah, get Mr. St. John. He's not getting any younger. You know, you got to get him recorded and talking about this and give us more information, because like we, we talked a lot about the movie, but we didn't go into all of the details of it, and I really, there are so many things where it's like, what happens with this? What happened? You know, tell me more of the original vision of this. And how did this happen? How did this happen? And you know, like, did you shoot all the stuff with the fantasy sequences before? And then you shaved off the facial hair so you could be George Latimer, the straight edge cop kind of thing. Or, you know, did you shoot that later? Yeah. Cause I, I, that was the first thing that I picked up on was just like, oh, he's always got like that cool mustache beard type combo here. But then when he's George the cop, he doesn't have that. He's just so like plain, you know, milk toast type of guy, but just with that seething anger underneath. Those kinds of decisions are so incredible because like you could go more 
over the top and have more obvious like costume changes but that subtle facial hair change it's he just like he he packed the movie with little decisions like that and i feel like you need to watch it multiple times to catch even half of them i totally agree the the more times because i've watched this probably about four times now and each time you pick up more and you see those connections more and you can see that there is a real logic to this film and I have yet to really you know, zero in 100% on it, but there's definitely a lot of stuff going on here. Like the one thing I was talking about with his mother earlier on where he is dancing with his mother and they eventually kind of drift apart and he looks back and it's this like beautiful Nubian princess and this tribal music comes up on the soundtrack. She just kind of like dances off the screen. I'm just like, okay, that was a choice. So I'm not sure what he's doing, but it's doing something. We could have had a whole long episode just dissecting the use of flags and uniforms and how they change, especially towards the end. Like, doesn't he have a pirate flag? Yeah, there's the pirate flag on the U.S. flag. Yeah, and then also you're talking about uniforms. He's, so not only does he have you know the astronaut uniform, in the astronaut uniform there's the orange jumpsuit, and this is before you know prisons took that on. So I don't think that we're supposed to think about that. He's got the orange jumpsuit. He's got his cop uniform. He talks specifically like I never want to put on that uniform again. He's got a trench coat I was talking about, and then he's got the white astronaut uniform and it's very pointed when he takes off the american flag and takes off the nasa patch and then he takes off his own life support system so what you're talking about before gary with like maybe he does have this death wish i mean he literally is killing himself in space he's ripping all that stuff off and throwing it off into the void of space but then of course it turns out to be a cheat and a lie (laughs) yeah yeah don't throw that don't throw that hot dog up here (laughs) (laughs) yeah what a brutal film it's like in every scene someone a different person in his life tells him in a different way that he's a failure no wonder he has a death wish yeah like i said by the end that litany of you know people being like n-word cop and this and that, and all, you know, just like you know, bullshit and all, you know, just all these words and and phrases just going through his head. But so that uh, by the end, that thing lasts for like you know thirty seconds every time they they show like all of the people that have piled on over this film. So let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Brother Charles is home. His moods as black as his skin. He done the man's time, paid the man's price. Now he's back on the street, looking to even some skulls. Welcome home, Brother Charles. The most outrageous, terrifying movie about the black experience you'll ever see. It tells it like it is, and the way some people think it should be. Welcome home, Brother Charles. When they're nailing the lid down on you, not much to lose by fighting back. Brother Charles has a secret weapon. His victims couldn't talk about it, their wives wouldn't. After you've seen it, you will. Welcome home, Brother Charles. They tried to take everything he had, including his manhood. A Crown International picture rated R.
That's right. Black History Month concludes next week with a look at Welcome Home, Brother Charles. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Sam and Gary. So, Gary, what's been keeping you busy, sir? Like Jerry Jones, man, I'm just trying to keep at it. And uh, I've been working on uh, an in particular, real quick, but it's apropos of Black History Month, of all things. I'm uh, reviving a kind of uh, obscure, I'm reviving him in a a short story and I'm probably going to extend it at some point. There was a a black uh, guy named E.C. Stoner. He's one of the sort of black pioneers in the early days of the comic book business. I'm talking about the golden age in the the 30s uh, and the 40s. And he created this character, uh, and I'm not going to tell the name of the character because I don't I want somebody to beat me to the punch. But I'm taking the character uh, and kind of reviving him, and, and of course I'm giving E.C. Stoner, uh, uh, Emil Cecil Stoner, credit because he eventually became a fine artist. But he he he, he drew and wrote comics back in the day, uh, and uh, and I'm taking that character of his and kind of uh, actually kind of setting him in the '70s. Now that I think about it. And, and having some fun with that. And it's going to, I'm going to tie it into some other kind of, you know, I don't quite have the extensive Marvel universe. I mean, I've, you know, I've written some comics and stuff. So, but I have my own little universe. And so I'm kind of tying him into that, that universe. Oh, that's fantastic. Because according to your website, you've written what, nine comics, 18 novels, 50 short stories, and you've had 4,000 donuts? Hopefully I have that 4,000 donuts. Lord have mercy. That'd be much bigger than I am now. But, uh, uh, all of that's a little behind. I've actually now up to about 22 novels and, and, you know, recently I've done a little work in, uh, uh, TV. I was on, uh, Snowfall, which is about crack and the CIA in 1980s, uh, South Central where, where I grew up. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a show on FX that, that, uh, streams on Hulu. So I've been on that show. This now is going to be our last season that's coming up, but I've had the good fortune to be on it for the last four years. So it's been a blast. And Sam, what's keeping you busy? This won't be announced for a while, so I probably shouldn't even bring it up. But at the at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned Michael Gonzalez. So I'm working on editing a book that Mike will be involved in and Michael Gonzalez will as well. And so, yeah, so it's it's a small world, this film community of ours. And hopefully I will be able to actually announce it soon. But it, it has to do with political violence in cinema. The other thing is check out my podcast, Twitch of the Death Nerve, and I have a Patreon, and what I'm going to be focusing on the next couple months is doing a series of in-depth episodes on Jean-Luc Godard's films. So lots of politics and cinema. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth and George take over the world. Why do we try to make it better? Tell me what does it get you? Why sweat it? It's only life and no one gets out alive. Who really gives a damn if you make it even if they let you? Even if they let you? Where would you go anyway when you finally arrive?
Just no chance to live. 